Hey guys, Jace here. Real quick before we get to the episode, I wanted to come on and talk about a cause that I just became aware of that I feel is very important. It has to do with the banning of books and censorship. There is a school board in York, Pennsylvania that's banned over 200 books saying that they're divisive, they're political. Uh, a lot of these are kids' books, they're children's books, they're about persons of color, they're written by persons of color. You look at the 200 books that are banned on that list, and it's it's so clear that this is sort of a, a whitewashing, right? Like they're trying to, to silence voices. Uh, and it's, these days, everything's all about inclusiveness. It's about teaching our children from a very young age about the, the, the truth of the world and the fact that everybody that you encounter in your life doesn't look like you and doesn't have the same beliefs as you. And I'm, I'm so against censorship, and especially when it's so blatant like this, where uh, all of a sudden this diversity education committee says that no we're not gonna have these 200 anti-racism books that are on this list it's wrong and what's really great is although this happened uh, last week and some of the books being written by uh, author brad Meltzer, who some of you may recognize the name as the author of identity crisis he writes as i said children's books but also a lot of novels he he brought this to my attention and uh, there's a couple of women out there in the area that are basically saying, go on to Amazon or uh, this other uh, book site, I think it's called bookshop.org, and you can buy the books and they will be shipped out to these uh, to these women, Hannah Shipley and JJ uh, Schaefer. And they are distributing these books out there to little community libraries, you know, uh, on the street corner by a tree, what, what have you, go and you can grab the books, take a book leave a book, what have you, because it's really important to get these stories out there, to get kids reading, to get them learning about history and inclusivity and diversity. Uh, well, since this campaign started last week, Hannah has received hundreds of books, hundreds of boxes from Amazon have come in. So that's absolutely fantastic. And the other thing that I just found out before I was getting ready to record this promo is the school board actually reversed their ban. So that's fantastic news, but it's not enough. They're trying to save their own butts. So uh, it's also important that these school board members be removed. There's an election coming up soon. Let's get school board members on this board that have the best interest of the kids at heart, that celebrate diversity and inclusiveness. So there's a ton of links in the show notes if you want to get involved. Obviously, there's a link to Amazon where you can go and purchase the book and have them shipped to Hannah where she can distribute them. There's also a link if you don't like to use Amazon to the other website, which I think is uh, bookstore.org or, or something like that. The link is there in the show notes. There's also a link to an article from the Miami Herald that talks in more detail about the decision that was made and why these books were banned and how Brad Meltzler has gotten involved. And it talks about Hannah uh, and JJ as well. Uh, and then finally, the last two links are links to the, uh, the people that I mentioned that are running for the school board six individuals that are very diverse, that are all about inclusivity, uh, because it's not enough that these books have been unbanned. It's not enough that the school board's been making excuses saying the books were never really banned, they just weren't allowed in the classroom, but they were available in the library. No, you're just making excuses, you got caught. Uh, this is inexcusable. These aren't the kind of people that I want making decisions about education, things that affect our children that affect the future of this country. So again, all those links are in the show notes. It's a very worthy cause. Go and donate some of the books. Go and spread awareness. Uh, it's important that these people don't get away with this sort of behavior. It, it, it matters. So it's a worthy cause. 
And uh, again, thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoy the the DC Spotlight. As always, we go in-depth with all the DC books this week. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source, Comic Boom collaboration. We're going to be talking about the DC books for September 21st, 2021. Uh, I can't believe how far and how fast, uh, how far into the year and how fast it's gone. Uh, We're already like three months left and it's going to be 2022. It's just insane. So um, interesting week. I feel like there's one overriding theme this week that unfortunately made it kind of a down week for me. None of the books were, you know, jumped out and were absolutely spectacular, but none of the books were, oh man, I wish I hadn't read that. Um, so yeah, just kind of, everything was kind of on an even note, um, but just kind of average, maybe a little above average. So I don't know. What'd you think overall of the week? Uh, well, overall, I was a little, this was, this week was a little disappointing to me. This was a little disappointing. Uh, there's a couple of, uh, standout comics that I, that I liked. I, I liked, uh, Tom King's Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow issue four. And, and I did like The Flash uh, by Jeremy Adams uh, issue 774 of that. Beyond that, it was Batman Day. It was Batman Day on uh, on Saturday. So uh, we, we had some enjoyment uh, from that and, and some free comic book day for Batman. Uh, and uh, I guess we'll be discussing that or at least touching on it. But, you know, there's been better weeks, but uh, it's still, uh, I'm, I'm still, I'm still chugging along with DC. <laughs> yeah, it was, for me, it was really frustrating. We were talking before we started recording what would have been my my favorite book, what I think was the best story and the best thing narratively and, and the most interesting and had the most potential, could have been my favorite DC book of the week, ends up being my least favorite, the thing I enjoyed the least because of the art. So, I mean, that's the sort of week it was, just really, really strange. But you're right, it was Batman Day. We will sort of touch on the, the books that were uh, given away for, uh, at any comic shops that participated in Batman Day. Uh, real quick before we do that, I do want to mention one thing. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you already heard because I put on the front as a little bumper. But if you're listening or watching us on YouTube, you won't be aware. Uh, but there is a link in the show notes that covers all all of this. So I was talking with Brad Metzler last week. Um, you may know him from his work on um, Identity Crisis. Oh, yes. Classic. Uh, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. He, he writes a lot of prose books. That's what uh, Brad Meltzer is known for. But he also writes children's books. Uh, and that's kind of him and I were engaging last week because some of these children's books that he writes, and it's the series that he writes called Ordinary People Can Change the World. He had some of his books banned in Pennsylvania by this Pennsylvania school board saying that they felt these books were divisive and they were going to cause problems and they were political and, and it's it's completely ridiculous. Why is it that they ban 200 books and every single book on that list is either about a person of color or was written by a person of color? Not a single book of the 200 that were banned by the school board in Pennsylvania is about a white person or written by a white person. Not a single one. Yeah. But yet it's not racism. It's that they're divisive. Books like I Am Rosa Parks. This yeah. is a children's 
picture book <laughs> that explains what Rosa Parks did. I am Martin Luther King. Again, a children's picture book that explains. Yeah. And I'm not saying Martin Luther King Jr. was a perfect human being. We know that he, uh, you know, had some affairs and, and whatever, and he didn't have the best relationship with his wife, whatever. That's not the point. The point is ordinary people can change the world. These these historical figures are part of our history. It's important. Are they perfect? No, none of us are. We're all human. But these are important stories to teach our children. You know, if you want to talk about the world coming together and people not hating each other, you need to teach them at a young age, right? Right from it starts in the home. It starts in preschool. It starts with picture books. It starts with learning that not everybody that you meet in the world looks exactly like you, and that's okay. And so what Brad did is he, he teamed up with this other woman. Uh, her name is Hannah Shipley, and she's a preschool teacher. And she was very bothered by the fact that the, this, the banning of these books took place. Now, I'm against the banning of books regardless of, of whatever the uh, subject matter is. You know, like yeah, of course. forget about the fact that they seem to be su suppressing a, a certain subsection of voices. Forget about that. Censorship is not good. We need to hear other opinions and other voices and be exposed to them so you can make informed decisions. You can decide, you know what? I read that. I think it's terrible. I'm not going to read anything else about that, but at least you expose yourself to it. It makes from, you know, people that can make more informed decisions. And so what this woman did, Hannah Shipley, is she created uh, an Amazon wish list. Basically, where you can go and buy these books. You can buy these books. They'll be shipped directly to her house. And what she's doing is she's going around this area where this uh, this Pennsylvania school board is in that school district, and she's putting these books in the little community libraries, you know, the little libraries you, you'll see on the street. She's even installing some more of these little libraries where you can go and you can put the books. Um, and so you can go and you can buy these books, and some of them are as cheap as like 5 or $6 dollars or some others that are maybe $15. But you can go, you can click on the link in the show notes uh, for this episode. You can go, you can click Go to Amazon, buy one of the books. It'll be shipped directly to her. She's going to go disseminate them. If she receives enough books so that all the little community libraries are full, then she's going to do like a, a, a book drive where she just hands out the books. Like anybody who wants can come and get these books for their kids. So there's 200 books on the list. Obviously, you don't need to buy 200. I think I bought like six or eight of them. It, it was less than 100 bucks. Again, she's doing all the heavy lifting. All I had to do was go to Amazon on my computer and just you know put six or eight of these books in the cart. Man. Click purchase and, you know, they ship to their house. Like I, like I said, she's doing all the heavy lifting. But uh, I just I think it's great that Brad is bringing this to everybody's attention. He's got a pretty big footprint on social media. So the fact that he's doing that and he challenged um, everybody, all his followers to do this. And he's trying to actually get I, I think it's twenty five hundred and seven copies of I am Rosa Parks and I am Martin Luther King Jr. Purchased and shipped uh, out there to uh, to Hannah Ship because that is literally the number of kids that are in that school district. So that would be enough that, you know, if Hannah can get the word out that every kid that goes to that school district could come and get a copy of the book from her. Again, I, I think this is ridiculous. I, I think the excuses that they're giving for banning these books are, are ridiculous. They don't like them. They don't agree with them. So they're banning them. Yeah, this they feel they feel it's a rewriting of history, and it's a fallout from the six months or the six months sixteen sixteen project, and yeah, they're it's, afraid it's of. None of that. It's none of these are kids' books. Same, I am Rosa Parks, and you read. The, I, I read it. It yeah. just talks about what she did. It's we're not white, you know. We're not rewriting history. What they're trying to do is whitewash history and forget that these people existed, and that's just 
censorship is not good in any way, shape, or form in my mind. And so yeah. I think this is a worthy cause. So if you want to participate, um, yeah, just go to the show notes and there's a link there. Uh, you can either buy it through Amazon. If you don't support Amazon, there's another link for uh, another place where you can go and buy it. It's called like the little bookstore or something like that. Same thing though. You'll go, you'll buy the books there and they'll be shipped to Hannah and she'll distribute them. So best of luck to Hannah. It's like fantastic. She put on her social media yesterday, as you're listening to this Monday, she put a big picture of her house Monday morning, Amazon boxes stacked four feet high, like surrounding her porch. So many people have already participated. So thanks everybody that's participated. It's a worthy cause. You know, like I said, for as cheap as like five bucks, you can, you can purchase a book and have it shipped to, to Hannah's house. So uh, check that out if you're interested. Uh, all right, on to uh, Batman Day. If you're not familiar, I think DC started doing this about six or seven years ago now. And it was all inspired by this little boy who uh, it was kind of a Make-A-Wish Foundation kind of thing. And his wish was to be Batman for a day. And um, the mayor of San Francisco had some contacts. The little boy lived in the Bay Area in California. And they made it happen. They called it Batman Day in the city of San Francisco. He got to dress up like Batman. He got to ride in the Batmobile. DC got involved and called it Batman Day. And then they kind of just took it over from there. And now every year on Batman Day, it's the third Saturday in September every year. And DC usually makes some books available, much like Free Comic Book Day, makes some books available to comic shops at a very, very steep dip discount. They're probably paying like, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 cents a book. And the comic shops can give them out. So this year, the books that were given out, the Batman uh, Front Point, Batman, what, what's the what's the video game called? Uh, how It's... Uh, Fortnite. That's Fortnite, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe people are like, oh my God, most popular video game in the world. You can't remember. But yes, Batman Fortnite Zero Point, the first issue of that had a new version that was given away for Batman Day. They also had uh, a new story called Batman Night Watch, which is an all ages uh, book. Uh, and then they had another book called Batman The World, which is actually being released this week as a hardcover, which is Batman stories written by creative teams from all around the world. Uh, so the, the United States creative team that wrote it, uh, that wrote their story is Brian Azzarello and Lee Bermejo, which, you know, pretty solid team. So this is kind of a preview. It doesn't have every single story. Again, if you get the hardback, it has like 17 stories from these different uh, creative teams. So it's a great slice of life. You have the Batman Night Watch, which is, you know, very continuity light, really all ages, anybody can pick it up and read it. You have Batman the World, which is much more sophisticated, and you're getting kind of the perspective of how different countries see Batman and their creatives telling stories of Batman. And then you have the Batman Fortnite, which is sort of a, a crossover. Also, doesn't really tie into continuity, but you know it's going to appeal to um, a little bit older demographic maybe than the, the Batman Nightwatch did. So I checked them out. I thought the Batman Nightwatch one was okay. We covered the Batman Fortnite when it came out. I think that's a strong story. The Batman the World, I kind of flipped through it. I read the uh, Bermejo, Brian Azzarello story because I'm fans of theirs, especially when they get together and work on Batman. The rest of them I kind of flipped through and I'm like, eh, they looked okay. I didn't really, nothing grabbed me that I felt like reading. I didn't order the hardcover. Honestly, we get enough Batman. But if you're, if you're curious, I, I didn't even read the preview copy. I think we got a preview copy of the entire hardcover, and I didn't even read that because it's just a little too much Batman for me. But it is a good thing. It does get people into comic shops. And, yeah, I, I mean, they'll continue to have Batman Day. I sort of wish there was a Superman Day, but 
This all goes back to just the, the popularity of Batman. And if it gets people into comic shops and it has them reading comics, then, hey, I guess that's a good thing. Any thoughts, Rocky? Uh, no, I think, he, I think you said it all. I mean, it's a, it's, I mean, Batman the World is what I'm most, uh, most interested in. I love the uh, Bermejo art. It's fantastic. And if it wasn't for the fact that we're gets, we get so damn much Batman, I mean, it's, it is better. It, it is a much better packaged version of Batman Black and White, quite frankly. So it comes in a nice, in a much more provocative package. And it probably deserves to be picked up. And I, I enjoyed more than a couple stories in it. So, I mean, look, if you're not already tired of too much Batman and you have to, you have to narrow it down, probably picking up Batman the World is probably not a bad uh, bet. I found Batman Nightwatch was very derivative and very meh. You could skip that unless you, unless you want to buy it for your children, buy it for a kid, then then that will you know it's 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 akin to Batman animated, uh, but even uh, but a little bit more simplistic in its storytelling. Yeah, it's not that one's not complicated at all. At all. It's definitely for a younger, I'd say like five, six, seven years old um, seems to be where it's where it's aimed at. Think about the animated series is that it had some style and it had some sort of subtext that was more adult. There's none of that in in Batman Nightwatch. Yeah. So trying to hook them, hook them young, I guess. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. That's right. Can never have more. Uh, can never have enough Batman fans. Nope, and and never enough Batman comics, according to DC. In fact, we're <laughs> going to talk about several. We'll, we'll kick it off with the first uh, regular book coming out today uh, as we're releasing this. Batman, De- the Detective, number five of six, from writer Tom Taylor, Andy Kubert on pencils, Sandra Hope on inks, Brad Anderson on colors. Clem Robbins, Clem Robbins does the letters. Um, pretty solid art. Uh, again, I'm glad that they brought Sandra Hope on to do inks because, you know, we talked about the, the first issue and how the art just wasn't as clean as we were used to from Andy Kubert. I think he's just one of those guys. He came up working in a time when you had an inker. You had a separate pencil and inker. Uh, so I don't I don't know that he even works digitally. Perhaps he does. I Like I said, I don't know. Um, but I, I just love the... I love the line work once you put Sandra Hope's inks over it because she's a, a really incredible uh, inker. Um, and the colors, uh, again, Brad Anderson, he's one of the top guys. A lot of people will know him from his work with Gary Frank. So uh, this was a, a great issue. A lot of action, all, almost all action, uh, with just a few moments of sort of uh, interactions between characters taking place here or there. But but mostly action that's all handled really, really well, beautiful looking art um, and a pretty fast paced uh, issue. So we did see at the end of last issue, Batman and the Squire had gotten onto his, I don't even know what to call it, like the the bat train or something. It's sort of this automated like recreational vehicle that Batman has. It kind of almost looks like the engine of a, a locomotive, um, but obviously it doesn't, you know, goes on the street. It doesn't have to be on tracks. Uh, and it's all automated. He doesn't even have to drive it. He's sitting in the back and he's yeah. communicating with his Batman incorporated uh, groups that are in Europe to try to. Um, the European uh, Alliance of the Bat is what they call it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he's trying he's communicating with them, trying to give them information about equilibrium and explain, you know, what he he thinks is going to happen and to try to track down e- equilibrium because he thinks that if they can figure out who equilibrium is they'll understand her motivations better and that might be key to stopping her and in fact it works they find out who equilibrium is and it's sort of what 
we expected. I don't remember if we talked about it on the podcast or if Rocky and I just talked about it offline. But basically what we had said was it, probably somebody who whose life was changed by the fact that Batman saved people. Yeah. And that's that's literally exactly as we expected. So <laughs> kind it, of it wasn't like, Yeah, exactly. It was a little bit predictable, but still done very, very well. So what we learn is Equilibrium's uh, husband and child were killed by a drunk driver. That drunk driver was saved at one point by Batman years and years earlier. So Batman saved this guy. So he was allowed, he, he was around, you know, whatever it was, five years later to get drunk and plow his car into the, the car of Equilibrium's family and kill her husband and daughter. So he blames Batman. If Batman hadn't saved the guy, then John Gallagher's his name. If Batman hadn't saved John Gallagher, John Gallagher wouldn't have been around to get drunk and then, you know, kill her husband and, and son, or I think it was a son. can't remember. Uh, but either way, kill her child. So, I mean, when you think about it, just absolutely ridiculous. She, in, in cards words, she sees Batman as a chaos engine. Um, if that's the case, like chaos happens, man, life happens. Shit happens. If you want to use that saying, you know, I don't yeah. think you hold one person. If it wouldn't have been that, it could have been something else. Like it's the total butterfly effect. Maybe he allows John Gallagher to die. And through the butterfly effect, maybe her, her uh, husband and child die sooner. You don't know. Yeah, I, you know, you know all, all, I, I figure all Batman has to do is get uh, get information from Henri Ducard because Henri Ducard trained trained uh, Equilibrium, trained the Charlotte Le Cerf is her name. He trained her, and why doesn't he get a list of people who she saved when she was an agent working for Henri Ducard? And some of the, some of the people she saved maybe went on to kill other people accidentally. Well, I mean, or, make her feel guilty was, about well, it. <laughs> well, she was an assassin, so she mostly killed people. <laughs> So who's to say that somebody she killed might not have somehow affected her life to the point where what if you, what if you had killed one less, less person equilibrium? Yeah. If you had killed one less person, then your timeline would have been different. And then you and your family wouldn't have been in that car at that time to, you know, in that intersection to get hit by, you know, you can, what if yourself to death? Sometimes the difference between, um, you know, making a, a red light and not making a red light means you get a ticket. Or you don't, you know, yeah. that's just life. You, you can't, you can't second guess it. So, I mean, again, it, it's a little tropey. Um, it's a little predictable. doesn't mean the story's not fun. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't want to say I expected more from Tom Taylor. Cause again, this is sort of what we expected. Uh, it's really about the execution. And at the end of the day, this is a, a, a fun story that's, Got a good voice for Batman, older Batman. This is an older Batman, a different version of Batman. Good voice for that, and the art's fantastic. So I'm still enjoying it. Um, and whether or not we see more of Equilibrium, I think she does have the potential. I do like, the, probably the thing I like most about the story and about the character of Equilibrium is that she's sort of, in a way, a, a different version of Bruce Wayne, right? Like she lost her parents early, Um and he swore off guns. She picked up the gun, you know, almost can think of it as the grim Knight, right. From, uh, from Scott Snyder, who created that character where it was a, a Bruce Wayne from the dark multiverse that when his parents were killed, he picked up the gun, same thing, shot Joe chill. And then became like Batman slash Punisher. Um, equilibrium is kind of the same thing. So it's, there's a lot of potential for the character. And I think that's probably the thing I enjoy most about, uh, about the story. So, 
all in all pretty solid, but yeah, it was uh like you said, Rocky, a little predictable. Well, it's uh it's very uh plot centric and uh it's very interesting because we've gotten some good character moments here along the way by uh from Tom Taylor in the previous four issues. And I, I kind of like the focus on the character of Henri Ducard. And, but for the most part, this has been in a, a somewhat of an adrenaline rush of a series that I've really liked. I will say we're at issue five here of this eight issue series. And one of the things that I hope we get more focus on that Tom Taylor is usually pretty good at, and that is some character development. Cause I'd really like to know more about this Charlotte Le Cerf. We got a very, we got a surface level origin for her, for her here, where she basically, I mean, she loses, I mean, Batman saves somebody. Uh, named John, who ultimately goes on to be a drunk driver that ends up uh, through drunk driving, killing her husband and her daughter. And and that's all well and good, but we never really got to know the, the character of Charlotte Le Cerf. We're just told that this is her motivation. She views Batman as not an agent of justice, but as an agent of chaos, and Batman must be stopped. And she's going to literally wipe out everyone that Batman's ever saved. That I'd like to, you know, Tom Taylor usually is good at those character moments, and I hope we get some good character moments between Charlotte Le Cerf and in issues six, seven, and eight, uh, which I'm confident that we will because Tom Taylor is good at that. This was a little bit plot centric, very plot heavy in this particular issue, I thought. Uh, but you know, again, the the moments that stand out outside the obvious, the the great action sequences here that took place with with the the, the big Batmobile, that train like locomotive Batmobile crashing in on e between Batman and Equilibrium as uh, the him and the Squire and they they all square off. There's some really great action sequences here, and uh, just the just meeting Henri Ducard and the 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 di- dialogue is excellent. So I'm looking forward to how this resolves. I'm hoping to get a little bit more character development of Charlotte the Surf, but I'm confident we will because Tom Taylor hasn't let, uh, really hasn't, He's that, that is his strong point, so fingers crossed on that. Yeah, actually, you said six, seven, and eight. There's only issue six left. There's only six oh, issues. So, well, yeah, in that case, I'm, so I'm, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I feel the same way you do because while I feel each individual, individual issue has been paced well, if we don't get those moments, like you said, yeah. in issue six, and is there enough room in issue six to give yeah, us those moments? That's then right. I do feel like it, it may be it a might little be a bit of a letdown. Yeah, because, because like you said, he's so good at that kind of thing. And like I said, there's so much potential for this character. So if, if we don't get it and can we get it all in, in one issue, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that will be the bulk of, of issue six, you know, a confrontation between Equilibrium and, and Bruce Wayne, Batman, and she gets a chance to you know, kind of exposit on her perspective and, and the way she sees the world. So uh, we'll see. Uh, anyway, sorry, I spilled my coffee. You guys are probably, anybody watching on YouTube is like, what is he doing down there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, the uh, next book, uh, of course, another Batman book. This one's uh, the regular Batman series, issue number 113 from writer James Tynan. We have art by Jorge Jimenez, Tameyu More on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, and this is uh, uh, a Fear State tie-in. And I, I will say that the two regular covers are just kind of okay. But DC this m- month is doing this kind of like video game type covers where they look like old school yeah. like Atari 2600 video games. And that one I, I like it says Dark Ops 7, Deep Cover Detective. <laughs> uh, and it's got like, I don't know who the guy with the eye patch is supposed to be. but it's Nagano, Mayor Nagano. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Man, Alex, how did I forget that he had an iPad? I was trying to remember who the heck has an iPad. I'm like, is that a young Alfred? I'm like, he doesn't have an iPad. But yeah, also Ghostmaker and and Batman. So yeah, this was a, a solid issue. Uh, what do you think, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I I thought that was a little slower paced issue, but it was uh, it was uh, it, it was good. Uh, James Tynion continues to uh, well script the uh, deterioration of Gotham City, the manipulation of Simon Saint uh, with his magistrate forces. He's been betrayed by Scarecrow. Uh, peace, uh, peacekeeper one has been, uh, uh, Sean Mahoney has been compromised by Scarecrow's fear toxins. So he, his mind is compromised. And in this particular issue, Batman is fearful from his confrontation of the fallout of his confrontation with Scarecrow last issue. He's fearful of, of the fact that his mind might be compromised. And so Batman, before he goes to Ghostmaker and he, he, he enlists Ghostmaker's help to try to, uh, through the help of some, some uh, special sort of mother box telepathic tech that Batman has. Of course, Batman has that. But Ghostmaker essentially goes into Batman's mind to help to try to deprogram Batman. And But before that happens, Batman sort of fills in Ren- Commissioner Rene Montoya as to what's going on. And it's a good way to get new readers up to speed. Uh, quite frankly, uh, one of the things that James Tynion has at times been criticized for, but it's also one of his strengths, depending on, you know, how you feel as a reader. There's there is definitely some exposition dump at the beginning, which I think is helpful for no re- new readers because it, it Tynion does a good job with the exposition he of making it clear exactly how we got here and exactly what's at stake. Those of us who've been reading from the beginning could probably skip those pages, but Batman is making it clear that Rene, Commissioner Montoya, knows exactly what's going on. In the meantime, then, Batman does ultimately take off, and he he and he he makes a point of taking out one of the peacemakers and warning Simon Saint, basically, that I'm coming for you, I'm the goddamn Batman, you're in trouble, and uh, you can see the terror on Simon Saint's face. He even gulps a bit because he knows that Batman's coming for him. Uh, and, of course, Batman then goes with to Ghostmaker, and this is actually my favorite part of the issue when he talks with Ghostmaker. Uh, I actually find that James Tynion scripts great dialogue between Ghostmaker and Bruce Wayne. I like the way that Ghostmaker and Bruce Wayne get and Batman get along. I like their banter back and forth. I like the sort of, uh, you know, uh, Ghostmaker has a tendency. He doesn't feel emotion. He's not particularly empathetic. And, you know, Tinian, you know, he brings that into play here. And one of the revelations that is uh, set that comes forward near the end of the issue is that Ghostmaker actually actually hired a young uh, Jonathan Crane when he was still in university because uh, because he was following Bruce Wayne's advice early in their careers. Bruce Wayne and uh, Ghostmaker, when they they basically kind of like they were partners for a while, but then they went their separate ways. Bruce Wayne encouraged uh, his friend to try to get in touch with his emotions and so a young Jonathan Crane had all these theories on emotions and fear and at one point uh, a young ghostmaker sought the advice of a young Jonathan Crane and this a large part of this issue is just takes place in Batman's head not a lot happens I mean there there's there seemed to be some deprogramming of Batman going on but there was no real revelation in terms of what was hidden in Batman's head really there was no real surprises there uh, other than the fact that Ghostmaker now is linked with Jonathan's crane, uh, but uh, I beyond that, I, I didn't I didn't find uh, the art was fantastic. I really like the design. I continue to like the design of the Scarecrow. Uh, the art by Jose Jimenez is fantastic. Colors by Tomo Mori were are excellent. 
I overall I thought, you know, I, I hate to say this, maybe I'm just getting used to the good quality, but it, it felt a little meh for me. Not a lot of revelations, but you know, it 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 it, it moved the story along, although just by a couple inches. <laughs> Yeah, I will say as far as forward momentum, not the most um, impactful issue. I sort of feel like, and and I actually really enjoyed this issue, and I sort of feel like the reason for this issue and the reason that it doesn't necessarily move the plot forward a lot is because it's more about setting the tone. And the reason I like this issue is because of the tone that it sets. When you, re- when you read or when we read Future State Batman and the Magistrate was all powerful and it just felt so disheartening in a way. What is established here, uh, and, uh, and I think early on when Batman is having that conversation with Commissioner Montoya, and I think this is a reason it's there and that it has value even for those of us that, have, that know what's going on. We've read Future State. We've been keeping up on Batman. This shows that Bruce Wayne's on top of it. This shows that he in my mind is it's inevitable that he's going to defeat the magistrate. Cause that's the thing that future state kind of skipped over. Right. Like, and, and I never understood and, and we didn't even talk about it and it just, it didn't matter basically because we were presented with the world of future state and told this is how it is, how we got there. doesn't matter. This is how it is. And in fact, I think maybe we did mention it now that I think about it early on and, and com- sort of complained about that a little bit being the time jump and well, how could Batman have lost? And, knowing what we know of Batman, this story, this issue tells me that Batman's not going to lose that scene that you mentioned where Simon Saints like, Oh crap. You know, he's like gulping as he's hearing this message that Bruce Wayne is sending that Batman is sending. You don't mess with the goddamn Batman. You don't try to take over city. No, that doesn't (laughs) happen. This issue shows me that Batman's going to win. We're not going to have that future state, uh, Gotham City that we saw. That's not going to be what happened. Batman's got this under control. He he's yes, he went through some sort of different kind of fear toxin. In this issue, Batman describes it to Ghostmaker as n- not necessarily being scared, but feeling like somebody's pushing down with their thumb on his fear center. Which I don't know exactly what. Like, how would Batman even know what that feels like? But <laughs> it's neither here nor there. I thought it was an interesting choice of of phrase by Tynan. But that's what I enjoyed about the issue. Just the tone that even though everything is falling apart, even though um, Peacekeeper One, Sean Mahoney is being affected by those same toxins that Batman was able to fight off uh, from the Scarecrow, this new fear toxin, whatever it might be. um, And he's in the throes of that and it's going to cause a big issue. Uh, Even while that's going on, even while these magistrate drones are flying out all over the city, that Batman is still... He's still there. He's still, you know, out there protecting Gotham City. This is the first issue where I feel like Batman's going to win, right? And we're not going to get that crappy few state timeline come to pass. And that's what I enjoyed most uh, about this issue. I do agree with you when it comes to writing the the dialogue back and forth, the interaction, the banter, whatever you want to call it, between uh, Bruce Wayne and Ghostmaker or Batman and Ghostmaker. I, I love it. It's fantastic. It makes me like the Ghostmaker character even more. Um, you know, it was a little confusing when he was first introduced. Is he a hero? Is he a villain? You know, kind of lives in that sort of gray area. He's just a fun character. Um, just, uh, I, you know, for some reason I liked him right from the beginning, and I, I still feel that. I, I do like the little bit of a retcon with inserting Jonathan Crane into 
uh, Ghostmaker's history. It, it fleshes out the story. It helps explain. It gives a reason for um, Tynan to be able to explain in in an actual comic as opposed to in the back matter. Because a lot of the things that Jonathan Crane is saying here about I'm going to use fear to, to force the citizens of Gotham City to force Gotham City itself to evolve and it will come out the other side stronger and better for it. Um, he's talked about that in interviews and in, in some of the, the back matter that we saw in some of the DC comics a few weeks ago. But a lot of people don't read that sort of stuff. So this this is in the actual comic itself, him letting everybody know, hey, this is what where Jonathan Crane is coming from. It makes sense. Um, so I think it's good that, it, that it's in there. So overall, yeah, I, I like this issue, not necessarily for what it is in and of itself, but more towards the tone and, and what it sort of pretends for the future. Batman's going to win this thing and the magistrate's going to go away. And Simon Saint, he, he is not somebody I feel like should go away and come back again as a, you know, a recurring villain. This is, this guy's not hush, you know, he, yeah. he should be defeated once and for all and just be gone forever. Uh, I don't think he's truly a threat without the psychological manipulation of uh, that, that he, the scarecrow has, sort of unleashed on Gotham city. So hopefully Simon St. goes away. We never hear from the magistrate again. That would be my, uh, my preference. So yeah. Uh, there is a back- yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, I just don't think he has a lot of staying power. So uh, there is a backup story called uh, clown hunter. Uh, this is part two of three. It's written by Brandon Thomas story or uh, rather art by Jason Howard. Clayton Cal does the letters. I don't really have much to say about this. Um, not much happens. Uh, we saw last issue, the first part of the story, Scarecrow threw Clown Hunter off a building. Now Clown Hunter's having all kinds of visions. He's seen his parents. They're back alive. But then the Joker attacks and they're dead and he falls through the floor. And that sort of thing keeps happening over and over. So what exactly is going on? I don't know. Um, but what I will say is that the title page that has the credits, it's this like Pac-Man homage with Clown Hunter written in those Pac-Man letters is one of the best things I've seen in a long, long time. <laughs> I absolutely loved when I got to that title page. I'm like, man, that is just really cool for, you know, kids of the eighties uh, yeah. that remember Pac-Man. It was just fantastic. But as yeah, far as the story, it's a, itself, it's a double page spread too. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. But yeah. you know, Rocky and I are fans of the character. And even though we're fans of Brandon Thomas and think he's fantastic. I could definitely do without this. I, I don't see the point of it, but who knows? Maybe, maybe part three wraps it all up and we end up thinking it, it's great. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm not a fan of the clown hunter character. And again, that's not the fault of the writer, Brandon Thomas, as you said, uh, this is just him hallucinating the death of his parents. Cause that's what he feared. I mean, it was a traumatic event. I, I, I maintain that clown hunter is royally screwed up. He's traumatized. This guy should, this kid should be in therapy. Of course he fears uh, remembering the death of his parents. Naturally Scarecrow would use that memory against them. I just don't see, you know, this, this is just exact. This is just further traumatizing Clown Hunter. I don't see how, <laughs> I don't see how this is going to make Clown Hunter better. I mean, the, when a kid has a has a phobia and a trauma like this, a traumatic event that that laid the foundation of his life, giving him post traumatic stress at a minimum. Uh, this type of trauma should make this kid. I mean, this is. This is outright child abuse, but I mean, I I realize I'm talking about the Batman family. I've joked about this before, but to me, this this clown hunter kid, man, this kid's a basket case. I just can't see how this kid could stay on the side of angels for too long here. (laughs) 
Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, so uh, enough <laughs> said. No, no need to beat a dead horse. Uh, okay, up next, it's another Brandon Thomas written title. It's Aquaman the Becoming, number one, Things Fall Apart. Diego Orlatuga handles the pencils. Wade Von Grabager handles the inks. Adriana Lucas on colors and world design on letters. Brandon Thomas was on the show recently to, t- to talk about writing this. And, man, let me talk about the art, first of all. Beautiful colors. Beautiful, bright, vibrant colors, which help it feel sort of instantly classic and instantly sort of grounds it in that classic DC superhero stories where it doesn't take itself too seriously. I mean, it's Adriana Lucas, so it's not a surprise that the colors are, are you know, spot on here. Uh, as far as the story itself, it sort of has that same kind of feel. Uh, so the, the colors and the tone do a great job of, of bringing that lighthearted feel, uh, beautiful, energetic artwork um, from Orla Tuga. I just love this. This, is my, this was my favorite DC comic of the week. Uh, great characterization for Jackson Hyde from, uh, from Brandon Thomas. He's serious at times. He is... He challenges himself at times, as as does Arthur Curry, Aquaman. But Brandon Thomas knows when to pull back. He knows when to add a little bit of humor, or a little bit of emotion. He shows that Jackson Hyde is a is a, you know a person that can be related to, um, and I like that. He's he, it's almost like he's taking Jackson Hyde, and he's interjecting all the different eras of of Aquaman, right? When you think about the different eras of Aquaman, there's the Silver Age where he's kind of goofy. Uh, there's the uh, the 80s, the Detroit era, uh, Detroit League, Justice League era when he was the leader and he got more serious. Then there's the 90s Peter David era where he had his hand chewed off by a piranha and he got really serious and he grew the beard and he had the long hair. Uh, and he's kind of run the gamut, right? And now he's he sort of has swung back to a little bit more um, – or I'll say less dark is the way I'll, I'll put it. You know, he's Aquaman has established his relationship with Mira. They have their daughter. It's a, he's a little more lighthearted now. You take all those different versions of Aquaman and kind of roll them all up, and that's Jackson Hyde's personality. He he kind of runs the gamut. At times he's very serious. At times he's more lighthearted, and I I like that. It shows Brandon Thomas is showing us that Jackson Hyde's a complete person, a real person. Um, and it also very much in this just a single issue shows us that Jackson Hyde is of Atlantis, is of the water, and he very much is of the surface world. And that may be what ultimately is going to cause the drama and the fiction or, or friction rather in this series because it seems like he's being set up for an attack on Atlantis, maybe by somebody from Zebel. They're at least wearing Zebel armor, whether they're actually from Zebel, which is sort of this lost city much like atlantis uh where mira is actually from and i think it was uh, correct me if i'm wrong rocky if you know i think zebel was like originally the, the penal colony of atlantis where they sent their prisoners to uh yeah i, I, spend, I uh, yeah yeah i think that's right yeah because it was i think it was king king reese sent his daughter yeah. mira to murder aquaman and yeah. that's yeah yeah, because they had they were basically the, the descendants of Atlantis's prisoners from from way back then. So there's always been a little bit of distrust um, over the years, and so we don't know who this guy is that shows up in this Zebelian armor. Um, but again, even that fight between Jackson Hyde and this 
uh, antagonist is, is fantastic. At one point, there's just a big, you know, crack, smash, bash, uh, knockdown, drag out fight. And man, I just love the, the scene of Jackson getting punched in the face with the smash. Uh, that first panel there, it's just so awesome. So I, I really enjoyed this. Like, this is exactly what I would want from a Jackson Hyde series. Because before the Future State Aquaman series, and that's the whole reason we had um, Randon and, and the artist Daniel Sempier on, was to talk about how much we loved that series and to get some insight into how it was made. I, I wasn't, I didn't really have any sort of emotional attachment or investment into Jackson Hyde. I'm just like, eh. Black Manta's son, okay, whatever. Uh, don't really care, to be honest with you. Um, but he's quickly becoming a, a favorite of mine. And I just think when you talk about legacy in the DC universe, you can you can do that thing that really ends up making people mad, where you just replace one for one. And fans of the old guard are like, no, why did you get rid of X, right? I, please, I want, you know, th that's not my Aquaman or that's not my Flash or that's not my Green Lantern. Barry Allen's my Flash or Wally West is my Flash or or whoever, right? Whomever. Um, what I love here is this, in no way does this ever at any point feel like Jackson Hyde is going to or is trying to replace Arthur Curry as Aquaman. It just, it feels very much additive to the legacy rather than saying, okay, uh, DC wants to be more diverse or they want new blood or, or whatever reason they want to give. We want to put Arthur Curry Aquaman up on the shelf and we're going to get a new Aquaman with Jackson Hyde. It doesn't feel like that at all. Instead, what it feels like is just being additive, um, just basically creating more of a footprint for who Jackson Hyde is, just making him more relevant. And based on what we get here in the first issue from Brandon Thomas, that's a good thing because this is well-written, it's well-paced, it's fun, uh, beautifully illustrated, great colors. Like this is everything that a comic should be in my mind, especially a DC comic. So does it have quite the emotional weight of the future state stuff? Well, no, it doesn't because there's not the, um, the anchor of the relationship that we got in that series between Jackson Hyde and Andy Curry, uh, Aquaman and Mira's daughter. So that's okay. Um, but at the same time, the foundations for that relationship, I think are being laid here in this series. So I, I love this issue. I loved everything about it. The scenes and interaction between Jackson Hyde and his mom, I thought were great as well. Uh, can't say enough about how fantastic the art is. And, and yeah, Brandon Thomas is quickly making me a big Jackson Hyde fan. Um, I don't know if I'll, I'll fall in love with Jackson Hyde enough to say I, I prefer him over Arthur Curry. Um, but who knows? I may end up liking him as much as. So, you know, I'll point to um, another series written by uh, a Brandon, Brandon Easton, and the Shiloh Norman uh, Mr. Miracle series that's going on right now where I was, I was sort of, no, Scott Free is my Mr. Miracle. Who's asking for the Shiloh Norman series and he's done an incredible job with that with that series which will be i think the final issue comes out we'll be talking about it next week um but this is kind of along those same lines right like it was the shiloh norman series that i never knew i always wanted and here we go with the jackson hyde series that i never knew i always mm -hmm. wanted so I, I thought it was fantastic and definitely definitely my favorite dc book of the week uh yeah. what did you think Rocky? I, uh, I i was impressed this definitely is a great opening issue 
it uh, if if you're not if you're not a fan of Jackson Hyde after this opening issue, you'll never gonna you're never gonna be a fan of Jackson Hyde. Actually, you know what impressed me the most was, and it it actually I found it surprising to me, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised. But the interaction between him and pro- what probably might be a potential future love interest when he meets that wait that waiter. Just the uh, kudos to the artist uh, Olatugo Olatuga. He is uh, the way that he scripts the facial expressions. You could literally tell Jackson Hyde is nervous <laughs> talking, meeting Davy for the first or Davy for the first time. You can tell that they're they're flirting with each other, that they like each other. You can see that attraction. You don't even need to read the dialogue to see it, and and even the even and the mom can see it. Her mother can plainly see yeah. that he's attracted to the kid. I mean, it's it's actually comical. This is like. This is something, the facial expressions alone, even without the di- even without the word balloons, you can look at those pictures and you know exactly what's going on here with the flirtatious nature and of uh, between uh, between Jackson Hyde and, and and the waiter, and and then when when Jackson Hyde leaves, and then as you know, as a typical mother, you know, what are your intentions with regard to my son? She says to the waiter. I mean, it's. I thought it was very well done. I mean, that was just beautifully scripted and just just perfectly drawn to capture the the, the mood and the ambiance that uh, uh, writer Brandon Thomas was trying to convey. And it works so well. The fight scenes uh, at the beginning where the training in apocalypse uh, between Arthur Curry and Jackson Hyde, you alluded to it perfectly. This, you use the word additive and that describes it perfectly. This is adding a legacy to the uh, Aquaman mythology. This takes nothing away from the legacy of Arthur Curry. Uh, it is true that Arthur Curry doesn't have his own series right now, but you know what? That's okay. I'm loving this Jackson Hyde. He's a kick-ass character, and quite frankly, hey man, we're always we're always we always have a little bit of Aquaman in Justice League, and uh, you know he doesn't always have to have his own title. And quite frankly, I would rather have Hawkman have his own title <laughs> alongside Jackson Hyde for a while. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's it's not. There's nothing wrong with Arthur Curry, but this this new, uh, new Aquaman is definitely uh, worth uh, people taking a taking a look see. Yeah, I do love the the comment that Arthur Curry has too that Aquaman has when he Jackson Hyde is is talking about um, the the apocalypse campaign, you know, sort of the the Aquaman version of the Danger Room, and uh, Arthur Curry says, "Yeah, it's one of Bruce's favorites." And Jackson's like, "Well, yeah, I'm surprised he's not here running it." And uh, <laughs> Arthur Curry says. He's Batman. You think he hasn't already run this simulation eight million times? <laughs> like, yeah, good, good point. Yeah, good, good point. So, yeah, no, it's yeah, good stuff. Definitely, yeah, definitely check it out. We do uh, recommend that one. Uh, all right, up next, another Batman adjacent title. It's Batman Secret Files: Miracle Molly, uh, and this is the book I alluded to earlier. This could have been my favorite book of the week, uh, written by James Tynan. Danny is the artist. D A N I. Lee Luffridge on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Um, and I felt narratively this was the strongest, um, very much a different sort of tone than what we just talked about. Very serious, a little tropey maybe with the misogyny and whatnot. Miracle Molly basically is this software engineer and she's working for this um, this company and she's being ignored. Uh, and you sort of wonder as it, as it all unfolds if, if they're sort of this Helios robotics company is undervaluing her on purpose because they know they can take advantage of her at the end. And that's exactly what happens, right? She gets sort of fed up with the bureaucracy and being ignored. Um, 
she can't get a promotion despite the fact that she is doing work far beyond her station. And so when she finally does try to stand up for herself, they use it as an excuse to fire her. So she goes, well, fine, I'll leave. I'll take my work. I'll go work for somebody else. And they say, oh, no, no, you can't take any of your work with you because you did that while you're under our employee. And if you had read your contract, you'd see that we own all that. And it makes you angry, right? You totally sympathize with her because it's not out of the realm of possibility at all for this to happen in, in the real world. So I, I love that. It explains who Miracle Molly is very much. And her name is actually Mary in uh, in the story. And so what happens is, she, is because she's disillusioned and has been for a long time while working for this company and, and ignored that she's sort of listening to the teachings of the Unsanity Collective at night in sort of a, a dark web type um, situation where she's listening to the teachings of, of uh, Master Wise, who's the, the kind of the head of the Unsanity Collective. And eventually she throws in with him uh, with him completely and sort of flips the script and, and has her personality erased and, and is reborn as Miracle Molly, which is sort of her online persona that she used before. You know, think of it like uh, the Matrix uh, sort of topic uh, relevant right now with the new movie coming out. The... Um, Mr. Anderson version, you know, Keanu Reeves' name in in the uh, in the Matrix, Thomas A. Anderson, as opposed to Neo, right? So instead of Neo, she's Miracle Molly uh, rather than Mary. So I, I loved all that. I loved the subversiveness of it. I loved the relevance. I loved the, the sort of realistic, if not very cynical <laughs> and anger-inducing um, sort of role that the Helios Robotics played in. I loved it all. The problem for me. And, and by no means do I think this should have super clean sort of Jim Lee house style art at all. No, it, it should be subversive. It should be a little abstract at time, but it goes so far beyond that. The art is so messy and so it, it doesn't convey the right, for me anyway, the right sort of emotion. The art just did not work for me. It, it, it was so off-putting that I was literally trying to ignore the art and just focus on the the dialogue and the narrative and the scripting and sort of create my own visuals in my head. Um, and so it took it from being what should have, I feel like should have been my favorite book of the week, even better than Aquaman the Becoming, and actually put it all the way down to the bottom as my least favorite. Um, and part of that is because of the squandered potential and part of that uh, is just because of the art. And again, uh, I'm no, I don't want to say that Danny, you know, didn't work hard or did a terrible job or or whatever. It's just this art style just did not speak to me. It I, it was messy. Um, it, it's not the type of art style where you expect uh, accurate, you know, anatomy or or whatnot. So I, you know, I tried to ignore those kind of things. But um, even sort of the the viewpoint that we're getting, you know, the, the, the camera angle on the story, it's almost the same camera angle the whole time. Everything is pulled back to kind of a medium uh, distance and everything is that same. We, we get a few close-ups here and there, but they're not even really close up. Um, and so there's not enough variation in my mind with the camera angle and our perspective. And the line work was extremely messy. I didn't get any kind of emotion or, sort of growth or evolution in, in characters. Everybody sort of has the same expression on their face the whole time. Um, and yeah, it's just, the art just really didn't work for me. Uh, the colors, it's a very muted palette. Um, and I, it, 
you know, that I, I think didn't really do the art any favors. I, I mean, I've seen Lee Luffridge on many things before, and I've seen his work, his color work be very spectacular, but I think he was sort of limited in what he could do based on the, the style of this art. Um, and so a lot of times it's, it's very monochromatic. You can see that in the first couple pages when Molly goes to steal something from this, um, this upper class family, it turns out it's her, her husband's family, uh, you know, and she had disappeared, you know, years earlier and they recognize her and that sort of falls into the, the origin of, of the story. Um, so yeah, I, so much potential, but man, the art just really didn't work for me. And, and I, I just felt really disappointed. Um, the only other thing that I'll say is for me, every time we've seen Miracle Molly prior to this, she's always felt to me like a, like a young teenage girl, like maybe 17, 16, 17 years old. So that was the other part that didn't really make sense to me. And maybe that's just me, whatever, making assumptions, but she always came across as really, really young. So I was a little surprised in reading the story to find out that she's, you know, a much older woman who's, you know, already got a job uh, as a, a robotics engineer or software engineer, or whatever it is at this uh, robotics company and was already married and thinking about having kids. I, I always took it to be that she was much, much younger than that. So maybe that's just on me. I don't know. Did you always assume she was younger than this, Rocky? I thought maybe she was a little younger. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, maybe. Yeah, I, I thought maybe she was like maybe nine, 18 or 19. She's older than I thought she was. But uh, this is that didn't throw me too much. I have, I'm coming at this from a very different angle, so uh, I don't. Uh, I'm going to rant a little bit, so I, I want to make sure you're done making your point before oh, yeah. I. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I, I do think it's worth. I do think it's worth reading, and and anybody who doesn't mind the art is probably going to really enjoy it. I would think. Yeah. Um, I'm still I'm still picking this up. Yeah. Uh, I had pre, I had pre-ordered it, so. Um, but yeah, just man, disappointed. It just feels like a wasted opportunity in my mind. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. First of all, I want to caveat everything I'm about to say because uh, by saying that I like this issue for a whole slew of reasons that that might might annoy some people and other people might get a smirk on their face. I actually think that Mary Kowalski. This is Mary Kowalski who. She eventually transforms into Miracle Molly after she's subjected to a mind machine from Master Wise. And, and Master Wise, you know, per, per Mary Kowalski. And uh, this is a obvious sarcasm. What on earth does Mary Kowalski have to be? Why should we feel sorry for this woman? James Tynion appears to be scripting this that are we supposed to feel sorry for Mary Kowalski? Let me see. She's married to a billionaire. She marries into a billionaire family. She's, uh, she's got a great job. She's, uh, she's highly educated. She works for Helios Corporation. And, uh, she obviously of her own accord failed to read the fine print on her employment contract, but somehow that's her corporate boss's fault. Um, she apparently doesn't like making love to her husband because she stares at the ceiling and the, in the one thing there. So she's, she seems to be depressed. Well, there, there's medication for that. Now, you might think, well, you know, okay, well, there's more to the story. Well, actually, there really isn't all that much. The only reason that Mary Kowalski seems to, how is she a victimized here? This is almost like the idea of like traumatic feminism. What was the trauma that Mary Kowalski experienced that caused her to, 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 fall, to voluntarily choose to go to the Unsanity Collective? 
You know, there's something about Mary. You know, D, there's something about Mary. Mary is screwed up in the head. She really thinks that her life is that bad. The only person, the only hard personal decision that Mary has had in her life was that she, oh, God forbid her in-laws who are billionaires happen to want grandchildren. But apparently she feels caged and she feels like she's being, she's pushed into a corner and that she has to do this. Let me tell you something about Miracle Molly. She's going to be, when she's 40 years old, she's going to be, have gray hair instead of green hair. She's going to be prematurely aged. She's going to be childless and alone, uh, longing for her husband, Matsuda, who she abandoned in her origin story. That's what I think is going to happen here. And now, after, I just ranted on that, so just bear with me. This is one of the reasons why I really like this story. I like this story because I'm, the rant that I just said, I'm openly wondering, did the mind machine push Mary Kowalski over the edge? It replaced her personality because I actually don't think that Mary had it all that bad. Now, and I think James Tinian makes the, is, is very dated, is very, very dated in how he, he, he scripted the Helios Corporation. I mean, there's no way you're going to convince me that in the 21st woke century that you're going to have a corporation that's why why would the, why would this corporation fire Mary Kowalski? She's a genius level. They don't need to fire her. Why wouldn't they just promote her and they still own all her designs? Her getting fired made no sense. The only way it makes sense is if you if you embrace the trope of they only fired her because she's a woman. And to make it and that's, you know, and that's all well and good, but that's not but that's not illegal. That doesn't make them look bad. They can fire somebody. They have an employment contract. They can keep the designs. But it goes further than that. You got to make the, the corporate head honcho be an abuser. He's got to threaten her. There's no reason for the corporate officer to, other than fire her, he didn't need to do anything else. It doesn't matter if you say, he didn't need to threaten her. It felt very forced to me because James Tynion is embracing the 1980s corporate mentality, which is... Which is just nonsense because in this day and age, this corporation would promote her. She she represents adversity. She represents diversity. She's a woman. She she would be promoted, not not fired. So I didn't actually buy this narrative at all. I didn't buy it. It felt forced to me, it, it, and and it felt like they're trying to make. I mean, uh, is James Tiny and trying to make a corporation a bad guy? He's trying so. Des- Are we supposed to be sympathetic to Mary Kowalski? Are we supposed to feel sorry for this woman? I don't feel sorry for this woman at all. I really, really don't. How can this is a this is a white female privileged woman of the highest possible order? My God, she's married into a billionaire family. She's she's highly educated. She works for one of the best robotic op- robotic corporations in the world, and she doesn't read the employment the fine print on her employment contract. But we're supposed to feel all sorry for her because she feels caged. Like I'm, I'm again. I'm ranting, but the reason, again, the reason why I like the story is, I'm wondering, am I completely misguided here, or maybe, maybe Mary Kowalski has been manipulated by this Master Wise who talks about we have too many choices in society, you know, and and under the illusion of choice, we're actually slaves, but they bombard us with all these choices and. No matter what we choose, we're still a slave to to the corporate boogeymen that, that control all aspects of our lives. And you'll notice that they're all men. You'll notice at the end of all this, and I and I hate and I, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to delve into politics on this, but just bear with me. But at the end, when uh, M- Mary's husband says to her, "Mary, please, this isn't you," she said, she, and she says, "Sorry, but it is. It really, really is." Well, is it really? 
I'm wondering, because if it is, Mary, I think you're a coward. I think you're a liar. I think you're in denial. I think you don't know how good you had it. And I think that you're, 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 you've bought into the illusion that somehow women are oppressed in America where the majority of households have a female breadwinner <laughs> and where, where women are more educated than men. You're in a country, you're in the best country of the world where women are at the highest point in their power than ever before. And I really think that James Tynion has completely missed the boat in the framing of this origin. I would have scripted it differently myself, but of course, that's not my job to play script doctor. I just, I'm just trying to review it, but I, I'm fascinated by this origin. I'm, I'm, I love the, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of passionately ripping it apart a little bit, but I, at the same time, I'm kind of impressed with it, but I think it's going to ruffle some feathers. But I just want to point out that what Mary Kowalski, when she became Miracle Molly, what she says to her husband when they, I mean, she robs her husband. Bear in mind that she becomes a thief. I mean, Miracle Molly is a thief. She's become the, a very, a, a very criminal. She thinks corporations steal from people. Well, she's stealing from the rich. Is that okay to steal from the rich? According to Miracle Molly, it is. But she says that she steals from the rich for her own purposes to build, and I quote, a better tomorrow on the ashes of the world Men like you ruined for the rest of us. And when she's saying that, she's looking at her father-in-law, whose only fault in the narrative is wanting grandchildren <laughs> and wanting her to know her place. Okay, he's old and he's traditional. But in any event, this actually, I I don't know. This this maybe uh, it probably sounds like I'm provoked a little bit here. And I'm not trying to. I just really enjoyed this. I, I think this addresses so many issues that are interesting in terms of different narratives and different viewpoints uh, of society right now, a pl the place of w women in society, you know, to what ex extent do they have agency? To what extent do they have choice? I think it's a very fascinating uh, narrative. And I like that James, I, like I said, I, I take issue with what James Tynion had felt forced to me. It felt, I thought it felt, lacked a little bit of verisimilitude on the portrayal of the corporation in particular. I felt it could have, I felt he could have maybe done a little bit more, um, you know, I think he played his hand and, and he's, he's engaged a lot of the tropes on, on traumatic feminism, uh, that are sort of being talked right now in, 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 in the mainstream culture. And he's not saying anything new. And I guess that's why I'm a little bit disappointed. I, I wish he would have done a little bit more research, but that's, uh, maybe that says more about me than him. But anyways, my rant is now over. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I disagree with a lot of, of what you said, I, I do sort of, I, I mean, I get it, right? Like we're farther along than maybe this story says. We're, the problem is we're nowhere near where we need to be in terms of sort of gender equality. So I feel like if he's exaggerated, he's exaggerated for effect because it is part of the story. But at the same time, there isn't a single part of me that believes this couldn't happen today in terms of firing a woman and stealing her work. For that matter, there's no part of me today that thinks this couldn't happen to a guy. Same well, thing. It, her, 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 her sex, her gender is is irrelevant to that. Yeah. This is exactly how corporations work. But but exactly she doesn't feel that way though. She thinks it's she, no, she identifies no. the men. That's what. Yeah. That's what yes. what throws me. Yeah. And again, I feel like that there's a lot of exaggeration for uh, effect. Where I do agree with you 100 percent is in this idea of her being broken down to build herself back up into something that is in no way intrinsically more valuable at least from what we're presented with than what she was before you know and that that all goes back to the beliefs that the unsanity collective espouses right like 
what we're really talking about here at the end of the day, when you break it down to its most simplest form, is the redistribution of wealth. And that's really what this Unsanity Collective is about. It's about the fact, and again, extremely relevant, it's about the fact that wealth in this world, you know, 99% of the wealth in this world is held by less than 1% of the, the people. And that's really what the Insanity Collective is all about. Redistributing things, Robin Hood, whatever, you know, however you want to explain it, what, whatever helps you understand it best. That, that's really what the Insanity Collective is all about. But when you're talking about intrinsic value, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. There's nothing inherently wrong with, you know, whether you're a man or a woman with getting married, raising a family, uh, you know, falling back on some of those more, if you want to say old fashioned or traditional lifestyles or values, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, with that. Uh, if it wasn't for her, then she maybe should have made some different choices instead of choosing to marry who she married and, um, you know, take that path and have it presented to her. I do sort of feel like, and, and the way I took it is the problems that she was having at work, she let those filter into the other areas of her, her life. She didn't feel valued at her office probably because her immediate supervisor knew all along she was a genius and wanted to steal all that stuff for himself. And that sort of colored the other part of it because she even told her, her husband that she, yeah, she did want to have a family. She did want to have kids when she was further along and felt like she was at the place she deserved to be in her professional life. So, you know, I don't necessarily think she was anti kid or anti family or didn't want to give her father-in-law grandkid. I, I just feel like it had everything to do with, you know, her, her professional life sort of coloring, which is a whole nother thing, you know? I mean, if anybody can speak to not having a healthy work-life balance, I'll raise my hand. Uh, I'm terrible at it. <laughs> my job I have now, I mean, when I was just a bartender or a chef, I couldn't really work if I wasn't at the restaurant. So it was easy. Yeah. I'd come home and that, that was it. I wasn't working. Yeah. But now that I work IT remotely, I'm always working yeah. or reading comics or talking about comics with Rocky. So. I, I do think though, though, I do think that there's something about this mind machine that this master wise uses, because I do find it very curious that he, they require a mind machine. I mean, if, if this is such a, an obvious, uh, successful group to join, and it's so obvious that uh, this distribution, redistribution of wealth has to occur. Why do they need to, why do they need a, a fancy machine to, 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 why do personalities need to be changed in order oh, to the, ferment this wisdom? This is why I'm a little bit like, I didn't think Mary Kowalski needed a mind machine to make the transition that she makes in this issue. That's what didn't quite work for me. Yeah, well, I think the unsanity. Don't get me wrong. The unsanity collective. These, these aren't heroes in the in the way you know a Robin Hood is a hero. It's not you know everything directly happening. Master Wise is not some altruistic figure. In my mind, the whole idea of submitting yourself to the mind machine is basically showing your dedication to the cause. You, if you buy into it, if you believe in the unsanity collective, you are willing to leave everything that you were behind to the point of having your personality and your memories wiped out to then become a member of the click, kind of like joining a cult. You know, that's really what we're, we're talking about here because you are going to dedicate yourself to the ideals and the goals of the insanity collective. So yeah, in no way is the insanity collective, some kind of a, a hero. There are no heroes. There are no protagonists in this story. There's just a varying degrees of victims and uh, groups that try to manipulate and take advantage, whether that is the insanity collective taking advantage of vulnerable, uh, damaged or hurt people like Mary Kowalski or the Helios Robotics Corporation that is in a way trying to do the same thing, trying to take advantage. So, uh, 
but it makes for a fascinating story and it makes for a lot of potential for Miracle Molly going forward. Could you do a story with her trying to be redeemed with her trying to be, what is the word they use? Deprogrammed goes back to her family and they try to, you know, restore her to who she was before, you know, fascinating to think about. So, uh, all right. Up next Shazam number three of four, part of the Sheridan verse, as we've come to call it written by Tim Sheridan the art is by Clayton, Ken, uh, Clayton Henry, uh, Marcelo Maiello on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Uh, penultimate issue with uh, Shazam and Dane in the, uh, what do they call it? The Under Realm? Uh, yeah. So what do you think of this one? What do you think of this one, Rocky? Well, speaking of underwhelm, <laughs> uh, underwhelm, this was underwhelming. I mean, okay, that was a very unfunny uh, attempt at humor. But uh, yeah. Uh, you know, writer Tim Sheridan is, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I don't find really that, that a lot happens in this issue. I, I don't, I don't find it all that really interesting. Although I'll, uh, I mean, basically Shazam, Shazam and Dane are still in hell. They're in the underworld and, uh, ultimately they're, they're looking for the rock of eternity because now Shazam's looking Ultimately, he's looking for the Rock of Eternity because he wants to figure out what's wrong with his Shazam powers. And one of the reasons why he wants to find out what's wrong with his Shazam powers is that he, well, is because they're going all wonky on him. Sometimes he changes to Shazam, sometimes he doesn't. And when he, sometimes when he does change to Shazam, his powers don't work. Sometimes he can fly, sometimes he can't, sometimes he has super strength, sometimes he doesn't. It's very wonky. Plus, his best friend, Billy Batson's uh, best friend, Freddie. Uh, is uh, dying from a, a, some sort of neurological disease, and Freddie needs to access the Shazam power to be, to change into Captain Marvel Junior. so that he doesn't, so he won't die. And so, uh, there's a lot riding on this for Billy Batson, and the the large part of this issue, I feel that uh, the the art here by Clayton Henry is is fantastic. I mean, there's a really good job here, uh, like very impressive on the art and uh, but i just don't i just don't think a lot happens neuron shows up and neuron is again he's he's sort of like dc's mephisto and he's basically the dc's equivalent of the devil neuron shows up uh, ostensibly to tempt uh, billy and and dane and his, uh, and he really he's all he's just there to have a basically a glorified conversation with them he wants to he he wants to basically control both of them, and I mean, ultimately get their souls or what the stuff that Neuron usually does. Uh, and all that happens at the end is Raven shows up and very seems to handily defeat Neuron, and uh, and then that allows Billy. And then then Shazam gets all upset with Raven, saying, "Why didn't you tell me about Freddy? You guys never told me about what was going on. The Titans." See Raven and Changeling and Starfire and Nightwing along with the Justice League. Nobody bothered to tell Shazam that that Freddie was was in the hospital and was sick. You know, I mean, as if it's their fault. Isn't that why? Isn't that Billy Batson's fault? Billy, don't you keep an eye on your best friend? How do, how can you possibly not know your best friend's in the hospital? Uh, so he blames. You know, so he seems to be playing the blame game, and and then it ends with the the ending here is interesting. So I found that not a lot really happens in this issue other than the fact that we just get an excuse to see Neuron, which is pretty cool, and allow Clayton Henry to show off his art. The coloring is also fantastic. So 
this is a this is a beautiful beautifully illustrated comic no question and at the end you know finally uh billy batson when he says says shazam he seems he seems to get some of his powers back and makes his way to the power of eternity where lo and behold he encounters a very very young looking black adam which for those of us who remember future state i mean we i mean we know that if the Black Adam from the 853rd century or whatever, he ends up coming back in time to essentially to change time so that ultimately the unkindness won't be released. So now what's confusing here is that we thought that Black Adam came back and we thought that was the Black Adam we already see in the pages of Justice League as scripted by Brian Bendis and that... We, I had thought, and I think most readers have thought, that the reason why Black Adam has become a good guy in, in the pages of Justice League is because he's had that experience in the future state, and then when, his, when he was sent into the past to prevent the future state future from occurring with the unkindness destroying all of the multiverse, we thought that, that, that that's why Black Adam became good. But now we have this young-looking Black Adam... And are there two Black Adams? And this this has been, you know, is there one? There appears to be a Black Adam that's trapped in the Rock of Eternity, or maybe not trapped, but he's there, but he's not leaving for some reason. And then we have another Black Adam. So now I I'm left wondering. The most the most interesting aspect of this entire comic is on the very last page. It's the only page that interests me, to be blunt. <laughs> which we could have we could have gotten to that last issue, frankly. Uh, but in any event, I'm really curious to know, I mean, that even though this issue I thought was largely a waste, even though it was beautiful to look at, I am curious what Tim Sheridan is going to take us in this, this, you know, why are there, do we have two Black Adams in the DC universe? It would appear that we do. Why? What's the explanation and where is this going to take us moving forward? Yeah, unfortunately, I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, and this is sort of an example of the fact that you can have some really cool moments in a particular comic, but just because you have five or six cool moments and they're paced out well, doesn't mean you have an engaging comic. Um, I think the artwork is, is fantastic. Just like you said, both the line work and the color work and the moments that we do get that are interesting are, are great and they're really standout. But again, that doesn't make for a, you know, a good story. It, 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 even though I feel it's paced well, and uh, especially the art does a good job from panel to panel of, of transitions and storytelling, it still ends up feeling choppy because it feels like we're just jumping from cool moment to cool moment. And the stuff that happens in between is so lackadaisical that it's like, what, what exactly are you, tr are you trying to do? So maybe this didn't need four issues. Um, maybe, and again, I, I don't know if it was editorial, maybe, if Sheridan was going to put in more stuff, he didn't have enough room in four issues to put in everything he wanted. So then he cut back and then ended up not having enough material. I, I don't know. It just, this felt like Rocky said an issue that the, the, the important parts that happen probably could have been put into issue two or maybe into issue four or issue three. And this could have been the end. I, I don't know. Um, because, yeah, what, what do we really need to know? Again, we get the cool moments. We get Dane manifesting. He doesn't have enough arms to cast all the spells. He needs to. I've only got two hands. Well, you're a magician. Just make more. Make yourself more arms. So that was a, a cool moment, watching them run away from 
uh, Sulagak through all these different portals was a, a fun, humorous moment. Um, and then in the middle of the issue, like Rocky said, it just feels like the, the whole reason this issue exists is for Neron to just talk at us. Not, not to us, just talk at us. Here's my expositional dump of knowledge that you need. Um, maybe because not enough people know who Neron is and he's trying to give us characterization for Neron. I'm just, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but we do get a cool fight between Dane and some zombie-like skeletons that gives us another cool moment, beautifully illustrated. Uh, and then next, Neron betrays them, as we all expected, because Neron is the epitome of a bad guy. Like Rocky said, Raven shows up. There we go with another moment. Dane is supposedly rescued from the clutches of Neron. Quite easily, it seems like. I didn't realize Raven was... Because to me, Neron is... Even though he's not used that often, yeah. he's one of the big bads. You know, like he you is. said, Mephisto level. Yeah, but Raven just kind of looks at him sideways and he, poof, disappears. Um, so again, moment. And then we get Billy Batson getting his Shazam powers. Again, beautifully illustrated moment. And then the Black Adam reveal at the end. Again, really cool moment. But, you know, five or six great moments don't a comic book narrative make. So, yeah, I... I mean, maybe when you put this all together, based on how it plays out in the final issue, it'll read perfect as a you know one complete story, and this will just feel like a little bit of a downturn before you get the climax. I don't know, um, but yeah, this was definitely under, not underwhelming, but underwhelming, uh, like uh, like Rocky said. So little little disappointing, but fantastic art, beautiful both covers. Uh, fantastic. The variant covers by Fico Osio, who's been doing the art for the the Mr. Miracle Source of Freedom. So I thought both of the covers were, were fantastic for this one. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, all right. On to our next book we're going to talk about. I know Rocky really enjoyed this one. It's Flash 774 from writer Jeremy Adams. Christian Ducey on art. Hi-Fi does the colors. Steve Wands on letters. What I found really interesting is you don't get comics like this often anymore. This is a sort of a one and done story. Um, you, you could pick this up without having read any Flash comic ever in your life, and you probably don't ever have to read another Flash comic if you don't want to ever again, and you get a complete story in here. Definitely rare in comics these days. So, uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? Well, this this sort of reminds me of uh, the good old days of Patrick Gleason and uh, Peter Tomasi when they were writing Superman, and we had Lois and Clark and a young Jonathan Kent on on the Kent farm and those Smallville, you know, Smallville, Kansas stories. Uh, this is just a this is just a wonderful feel good story, <laughs> uh, starring a Doctor Nightmare, the villain of Doctor Nightmare of all things, and this is basically Wally West taking his daughter Irie to a uh, father-daughter dance at school. And he's a nervous father. And, uh, you know, <laughs> young, uh, you know, Christine, uh, Christian Deuce, uh, Deuce, how do I say his last name? Deuce or Deuce? I think it's Deuce. Deuce, Christian Deuce. The art is is really good. Uh, young Irie here, she just looks uh, adorable. I have a, I have a bias. I have a, I have a six-year-old daughter. And uh, who looks to be about the same age as Irie. I'm not sure, uh, probably younger than Irie. But in, in any event, it's it's impossible. The dad in me just loves this issue because I can so relate to Wally West. And, uh, you know, the picture with his daughter. And they, they just look adorable. And I just, you know, this is just a feel-good story. And 
they, you know, it ends up, they, they end up going to the, the dance and this Dr. Nightmare uh, works for Terrific Tech. Because remember, Wally West works for uh, Mr. Terrific's uh, uh, corporation. <laughs> I wonder if Wally West read the fine print. In any event, um, uh, this Doctor Nightmare used to work for Mister Terrific, and he's disgruntled because they they didn't his genius wasn't appreciated. So the villain here, the villain story of Doctor Nightmare, is a little tropey, but I don't care because that really is not the point of this story. This is the the point of this story is just to watch the relationship and the dialogue between uh, dad and daughter here between Wall, uh, Wally and his daughter Irie. And uh, I love how when she's describing, uh, you know, the dialogue here by Jeremy Adams at one point, uh, young Irie is telling her father what fog is. Did you know that fog is just water molecules that hang in the air after condemnation? And then he corrects her condensation. And that's what I said. So you can just imagine a young girl having this conversation. It's just, it's just, it's just feel good. It's feel good dialogue. It's a feel good story. And and it also gives some agency to young Irie. She ends up, uh, uh, I mean, if it's one thing that the young have, it's an imagination. And, you know, kudos to Jeremy Adams by having young Irie use her imagination by taking the helmet created by Dr. Nightmare. And this helmet that Dr. Nightmare has brings dreams to, to life. And it allows him to create nightmares out of people's dreams and what have you. And he can control the nightmares. And But in this case, it's young Irie that ultimately uses this. Uh, she steals, she manages to steal the headset from Dr. Nightmare and uh, Wally distracts distracts him and because he because of the nature of the gas that dr nightmare used to put all the people uh, in, in the school to sleep uh they lose their they temporarily lose their speed powers and um and you know again at the end of the day they win the day young irie utilizes the headset she looks <laughs> it looks so she looks she even looks adorable wearing it and uh you know, they end up feeding Dr. Nightmare and she creates the this giant panda bear and this giant green puppy and this female action figure and this double-headed bunny. I mean, it's just something you can imagine a young girl would, would dream up. And it's just it's just fun. It, it just warms the heart. And I got to tell you, man, after how many years did we long for Wally to get his family back? And I'm telling you, man, Jeremy Adams is giving us fans what, as far as I'm concerned, what I as a fan want. Forget about giving me what I need. This is what I want. I love stories like this. I love the art by Christian Ducey. The color, the coloring by a hi-fi is fantastic. I love the unique, I just love the color of their hair. I mean, nothing, nothing more vibrant than a well-colored ginger come, you know, just popping off the page. I love this. And, you know, dancing in Paris, you know, at the end of the issue, uh, father and daughter. Wow. I, I don't know. I mean, I just, this is, um, this is my second best comic of the of the week. It, it I might change my mind before the end of our reviews here. I might make it the first now that I'm talking about it. But uh, uh, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I don't really have the same sort of emotional connection to Wally West and his kids that a lot of DC fans do because I I had stopped reading um, Flash before he got married to Linda Park and and had the kids or whatever. So I don't have any nostalgia for it. Uh, if I have to choose a flash, I'm, I'm more partial to, to Barry Allen. Uh, although I like Wally uh, a lot as well. So for me, this didn't really pull at any sort of heartstrings in that way. Um, but much like yourself, I do have a, a daughter. She actually just turned 10 this last weekend. So double digits. So, 
Uh, yeah, it makes you think back on uh, years gone by and, and how fast they, they grew up. So for me, it, it did have uh, some meaning. And I, I do think that the relationship between a, a father and a daughter is so much different than between a father and a son because I, I have a son as well. So in that way, I, I, I did enjoy the story. And, and like I said, I, I enjoyed that it was a one and done. You're 100% right about the artwork and the color, just top notch from Doucet and, and Hi-Fi. Um, and I, I just love the fact that it was a one and done, you know, that you could just read this story. And the interaction between father and daughter, I thought was just fantastic. So there's a lot to, to like here. Um, if I had any nitpick at all, I, I'm still not 100% sure what the tone of Jeremy Adams' flash run is going to be. I mean, we had the the big giant storyline with Wally thrown into the Speed Force and how that ended up being sort of a redemption for Wally in terms of it was that event, that speed, those Speed Force explosions that killed everybody at Sanctuary and not Wally himself. And then, you know, from there, a couple of issues story about Heatwave with cancer and Wally getting a job. And now this, it's sort of been all over the place. Uh, we've gone from super serious, tied into continuity, to sort of a classic rogue story, to now a story of Wally and his kids. So I wouldn't mind a little more consistency in tone, um, but it does seem like we're going back into um, some sort of bigger, uh, longer story arc here, as we're, we're told that the mysterious clave has reached its destination this giant sword looking thing that crashes into central city and there's a blurb saying flash versus a lot of bad guys is coming <laughs> next so uh so we'll see how that all all plays out but i i will say if you are a fan of of wally west flash and you are a fan of when he was married to linda park and his kids were around and what have you then it's back <laughs> what you wanted and people have been asking for it for a long time is 100% back, uh, which I just, you know, when you stop to think about it, it's so strange. The the title is called The Flash, and it's no different than it was 15, 20 issues ago in terms of the volume. It's still the same volume of The Flash. That was Barry Allen, and now it's completely transitioned over to Wally, and, and Barry's sort of off the table in Infinite Crisis or whatnot. Yeah, And this would never have happened even as recently as maybe three years ago. And it would never happen at Marvel even now that you would swap Wally West for Barry Allen and you wouldn't start with the new number one. Thank you, DC, for not <laughs> starting over the <laughs> new number one. Because this is just a perfect example of why it's not yeah. necessary. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Up next is uh, another Batman adjacent title tying into Fear State. Nightwing number 84, written by Tom Taylor, Robbie Rodriguez on the art, Adriana Lucas on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. Uh, we're told it's part one of three. Uh, and this goes back to what I was talking about with the Miracle Molly art and just how I felt like it's a little bit of an underwhelming week. So many of the regular artists on titles aren't doing the art that we have come to know and love from them. This is another example of that. We have Robbie Rodriguez rather than Bruno Redondo. And I get it. Bruno Redondo is working on an issue of Nightwing where it, the whole entire issue is one long panel. Uh, and it's very time consuming and it's a lot of work. And so I imagine that's why they gave this issue to Robbie Rodriguez. But uh, it, the art just didn't work for me. It's not anywhere near as clean. 
or as polished as the art that we're used to on Nightwing. And that art, Bruno Redondo's art, to me, is so intrinsic and tied in with the feel that Tom Taylor gives to Nightwing, that sort of fun but yet sexy vibe that uh, that Dick Grayson has and that the story and the narrative has. And this issue is missing that for me. So it definitely feels like a bit of a letdown. Um, and and that, that's the first time I've, this is the first time I've been disappointed in an issue of, of Nightwing. There's still some fun moments, particularly when Dick Grayson gets the, the neighbor kids to watch his dog. Uh, I thought that one, that was pretty funny. Um, <laughs> but, but overall it just, it was just okay. Um, there are moments where Tom King still manages to give us some, uh, some real emotional beats, uh, particularly when Dick Grayson goes to, to Gotham City. He, he hears the call uh, that they need help over there with what's going on with the Scarecrow and Fear State, obviously, and whatnot. And he heads over there, and there's this old guy who's out past curfew, just needs to get some milk. And he gets hassled and, and eventually apprehended by the magistrate. And it just, again, it, it angers you. Um, but on the very next page after that happens, there's um, – there's one more page, Rocky. Uh, there's Robbie Rodriguez in the top panel there trying to, and I've never seen him do this ever. Uh, I haven't read everything he's done. You know, I know Spider-Gwen was a thing and maybe he did this there, but he tries to do the multiple exposure thing in a panel to show movement like Bruno Redondo does. And it just yeah. doesn't work with Robbie Rodriguez's style of art. It just yeah. doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So ultimately this felt like a little bit of a letdown for me. Um, I did enjoy the interaction between uh, Dick and Bruce, as uh, I think Tom King always portrays that really, really well. There were some fun moments, but ultimately, much like Miracle Molly for me, the art just kind of let the narrative down, and I didn't, I didn't particularly enjoy it. You know, where usually I'm like, "Oh, Nightwing's so good, be sure not to miss it." This was just average. Uh, didn't feel like anything particularly special to me. Didn't feel like anything particularly happened other than Dick left Bloodhaven and went to, uh, to Gotham city and we got Batgirl's new costume, um, Barbara Gordon Batgirl as she's going to actually take it upon herself to get out there and, uh, get down to the trenches with Dick and try to find out who this anti Oracle is. So felt like a lot of setup with, with not, and I won't say it's not good art. It's just it felt like a lot of setup with art that doesn't really s- kind of suit the tone that the Tom Taylor era of Nightwing has had up to this point. So, what do you think, Rock? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I this is j- I found this to be a absolutely divergent uh, artistic style, and and I got nothing against Robbie Rodriguez. He's not my favorite artist, but you know I could even get behind this. I just I'm I'm more I'm just. This is such an obvious editorial departure from the storyline. It's so obvious. I mean, it, it's it even it almost breaks the fourth wall at the beginning because Nightwing even alludes saying, you know, I, I got to go to Gotham now. Uh, you know, he doesn't want Bloodhaven to end up like Gotham, and then he's he's got to go help out uh, Batman and Gotham. This is a complete diversion. I'm hoping that the next three issues, because we're gonna get the next three issues of this nonsense. I hope that Bruno Redondo doesn't draw any of these issues. I don't care. Let these three issues be Robbie. The next three issues be Robbie Rodriguez 
and then let, let Redendo get caught up and jump ahead and, and, and work on the subsequent issues uh, when we get back to this main storyline. Why can't we just have, why can't this issue just be Nightwing returning from Gotham without telling us what happened and we can continue with the storyline here? I'm much more interested in his responsibilities uh, of his foundation, the Alfred Pennyworth Foundation. I'm much more interested in in the storyline uh, with him and his, you know, uh, M- M- Malin- his sister Melinda, who's also the the mayor. Uh, the the ongoing plot line and developments uh, with with respect to Blockbuster and the mafia. There's there's so much so much to really mine. In Bloodhaven, I I don't like the distraction of taking him out of Bloodhaven. This is a big mistake. I don't I don't want to read about Nightwing, and we already we get. I know we have to. I know we pretty much have to. We're forced to. I get it, and I I don't dislike all of Future State or part of me Future State. I guess Fear State, but man, I why can't he stay in Bloodhaven? I would have much rather have preferred that than go to Gotham, but. Enough about me complaining about that. It is what it is. But if anybody's going to skip any issues of Nightwing, this hurts this title. This this takes the momentum on this title, and I think it screeches it to a halt, straight up. The artistic, the 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 jarring artistic difference screeches screeches this plot line right to a halt. Are the are the fans going to come back if they got to endure this for three for two more issues after this? This artistic change and 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 the narrative. Narratively, this is way off on a tangent, and artistically, it's off on on what on what was advertised. And I just feel this is kind of a betrayal. This is, uh, and you know, I don't mean maybe maybe I'm being melodramatic here, but really, if you want to stand out in this competitive comic book market, this is precisely the type of garbage that you need to avoid. These types of editorial hiccups, and that's not an insult to Robbie Rodriguez or the Fear State storyline, but you got to plan these things out better. You know, but anyways, that's me on my soapbox, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you're 100% right. It's It, it kind of reminds me, and, and thank God over at Marvel, it was only half an issue. But I know you read Daredevil, too, by Zdarsky. And when they yeah. they tied it in with um, the King in Black for half an issue, it just it was, it was so out of it was so out of place. Yeah. And that's what this feels like. And you're right. I mean, with the success of Nightwing under Taylor Redondo, if you wanted a Nightwing series or to have Nightwing be involved in Fear State, you should have done a Nightwing mini, you know, and just let them keep doing what they're doing. And you could have just done a Nightwing mini series and called it Nightwing Fear State. So anybody that didn't want to deal with it, it wouldn't have to. Um, but, you know, again, that's not the reason for crossover. The whole reason for crossovers is they're hoping that people that are only Nightwing readers are going to get sucked in and they're going to buy all the other fear state stuff. So based on the quality of this issue, I think that's wishful thinking. Not that fear state hasn't been good, but like you said, if somebody's reading nightwing because they love the tone and feel of nightwing, this does not feel at all like nightwing and what we've been getting. And so that's not going to entice them to go pick up fear state. Yeah, I agree. Maybe, Maybe the next issue will be better. We'll uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, all right, on to the next book. It's Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number four, from writer Tom King, Bilquis Evely on art, Math, uh, Mateus Lopez on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, are we halfway through now? This is eight issues, right? Uh, yeah, so we're we're halfway through with issue four of eight. Uh, what do you think, Rock? Uh, well, this is uh, just to start off. I, this is. 
this was uh, my my favorite book of this is my comic book of the week. I really liked it. It possibly is tied with Flash seven seventy four, but I, I I still think Supergirl just it just ekes out Flash just by uh, a little bit here. Um, this uh, this issue. What 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 I like about this issue is, uh, first of all, I I actually like the covers. I mean, uh, it's I don't know who did the alternate cover here, but the the covers here are really nice. But in any event, th- this involves Kara taking Ruthie. Uh, they're 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 looking for for this uh, uh, Krem character, this Krem of the Yellow Hills. This Krem character is a terrorist. He started off as a murderer. He killed the young girl Ruthie's father. And on her planet, and super, and he also shot an arrow into crypto, and so Kara, Kara and Ruthie are looking for this uh, Krem character who has teamed up with this group of Barbond brigands, a genocidal group that's going, and and they're traveling. In this issue, uh, I counted them all and I wrote them all down. There's eight different planets that Kara and Ruthie visit in this issue, and they're always one step behind trying to find Krem. Because it should be remembered that uh, originally the motivation for Kara to go and find Krem wasn't just to help Ruthie get her revenge on Krem for killing her father, but also Krem created a poison that only he knows the, the, the exact ingredients of the poison concoction that he dipped the arrow in that he used to shoot Crypto. So the only way that Kara can save Crypto is that she's got to find Krem and find out what was the mixture of poisons that Krem used in order to save Crypto back on Ruthie's planet. So those were the initial motivations. But what Tom King does here, I think, very well is that it's very obvious that as they're following Krem from planet to planet, and you and I reviewed that that excellent uh, issue three where where there was the blues versus the purples, and it was uh you know uh the, this this genocidal group essentially exterminated an entire group of people, and the just the the themes and that resonated in that issue and the atrocity, and the way Supergirl kept so calm when she's dealing with people that were sat by idly back while a genocide occurred against peoples of a different color. I mean, it was a very powerful issue. And what's very apparent here in this issue is as they're going from planet to planet to the planet Parnalt and then Inklin and then Tilius and Erlon and Tarkun and Ekvik and Yala and Nisillin, all these planets, there's multiple atrocities that have occurred because of this group of that are, uh, that Krem is this Krem villain is part of. And it's very obvious that Kara, that they're getting close to Krem, and Kara doesn't want Ruthie to be with her. She she always wants to protect Ruthie. She doesn't think that Ruthie should be with her to witness all these atrocities. I mean, at one point, there's a very powerful scene where where Kara is helping is helping a, a young uh, a young person or a, helping a husband bury like over 1500 dead in a graveyard, and she helps she helps uh, bury like hundreds of dead. And the, I mean, the, uh, it's quite obvious that these, these are genocidal maniacs. This, this Barbond Brigand, they're, they facilitate genocide. They're like space pirates that go from planet to planet creating chaos and they, they rape and pillage people and planets. They just don't care what they destroy. And, and it's, we get to the end of this issue. And what's so powerful is that we see so many people 
we witness the reaction of all these people to these atrocities and we witness these warriors break down at one point uh, supergirl confronts a, a warrior and she's trying to get a reaction out of this warrior because she wants this this warrior return to find that uh, her husband and child were killed by this by Krem and the Barban Brigand and she's trying to get a reaction out of this out of this villain and 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 she 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 finally does but it's it's all these emotions that are captured and are let loose and how these different cultures deal with loss. And then with another planet, there's a group of monks that sit idly by and they just pray while they're being massacred and different people react differently to genocide. And, and it, it occurs to Kara that she doesn't want Ruthie to see this. And in a very powerful scene, you know, Ruthie gets upset with her because she insists, look, we're going to find Krem eventually and I'm go- I want to be with you. At one point, Ruthie says to Kara, my vengeance is not lesser than your nobility. And if you can suffer it, I can suffer it. And Ruthie is saying, I don't care what I see. I don't care how bad it is. I want my vengeance. And this is where the difference between Kara and her cousin Superman really shine through. Because can you imagine Superman will you know willfully taking a child with him flying a child on his back right into battle against genocidal maniacs i mean you'd never i don't think you'd ever see superman doing that yet at the end of this issue kara decides to take ruthie with her to to what we what we believe next issue they're finally going to be catching up with krem and the and the um, brigadiers or whatever and it's gonna be. It's gonna be something. It's gonna be something. Uh, there's there's a scene in here where one of the uh, one of the members of the brigand is actually executed and stoned to death by by an entire uh, group of people. And Ruthie says to Supergirl, "I know surely he deserved his fate, but I had some thought that you'd save him." And and Kara says, "Did you?" And that's interesting. So Kara did not try to save this man. Superman would have stepped in. And would not have allowed, I'm sure Superman, Superman is against killing yet. Here is Kara sitting idly back while one of these members of these, these men who have participated in genocide, she's allowing these people to have their justice by stoning this person to death. So Kara is getting emboldened and maybe a little bit cold and her heart's being hardened against these criminals. And it even surprises Ruthie and it's really interesting to see the character journey that Tom King is taking Kara on here, but also young Ruthie. And it's, I'm so, I'm just so captivated and interested in what, how Tom King is putting, how he's scripting Ruthie and Supergirl. At one point, Supergirl flies into the sun and, and because, and she just screams because she's letting loose. And Ruthie makes the observation that she thinks Supergirl and Car is always living in pain because she's got to keep all this inside and she can't let it out because she's too powerful. She might hurt somebody. And it's a very interesting interpretation that, that Ruthie has how, how Ruthie sees Kara and Kara's struggle with the genocide that they keep following from planet to planet. I thought it was very well done. This is exposition heavy. I think some readers, if you're not into exposition, I think that the greatness of this story lies in, 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 in taking the time to read the exposition, to get involved into the characters, to know what she's feeling, to know what that the narration here by Ruthie, I think is excellent. And, I, I'm I'm really enjoying this, and I'm I'm really seeing the the internal struggle that Supergirl has, 
And, you know, at the end, it's so powerful. And Ruthie asks Supergirl, how many years did you have when you first saw Terror? And Supergirl says, I was a girl. And Ruthie says, you were a girl, fine. And what then am I? Basically saying, look, if you can take it, I can take it. And Supergirl throws Ruthie on her back and they fly off to meet Krem, presumably next issue. This is a very powerful issue. I mean, I'm giving Tom King a compliment again. I'm going to run out of uh, different ways of saying this. This is a very powerful story and I highly recommend people pick this up. Yeah, it's been a really great series so far. This was not my favorite issue. Um, it did feel like a little bit of setup for perhaps the next issue. The overwhelming sort of thread that went through this issue was, for me, the, the trauma that Supergirl carries around with her, basically, which is not something that is intrinsic to the character normally. But when you stop and think about it, it probably should be. Um, you know, the fact is, whether you it's John Byrne's origin of Superman you prescribe to or somebody else, post-crisis Superman, he has no memories of, of Krypton. You know, in, in the Byrne origin, you know, he was in the gestation matrix and basically he was still the Kryptonian equivalent of a fetus still and that gestation matrix he continued to uh, basically grow and mature until by the time he crash landed on earth he was a baby and and so technically he was born on earth you know if you if you think of it that way um you know some of the other or origins he was just a small child you know born on krypton but no again no memories as opposed to supergirl kara who has memories who was old enough to to remember and everybody she knew and loved on Krypton was lost. And so when you think about it from that perspective and you're reminded of it, which Tom King is doing, that's what this Supergirl woman of tomorrow story is all about. You realize that, that trauma and loss are intrinsic to this character. It's just never been focused on in any sort of way until now. So it's what Tom King's good at exploring trauma, making it relatable, uh, you know, exploring it through the lens of, of superheroes. And so Everything rings true, especially the scene that Rocky mentioned where Supergirl flies into his son to just, you know, she curls up into a little ball and then kind of explodes, um, letting that, that trauma out. And uh, and Ruthie's sort of realization, uh, and it's a mature realization, realizing that it's not that Kara goes through her life trying or needing to sort of expend herself in order to do anything she needs to do in terms of, you know, feats of strength to defeat a villain or, or what have you. It's not, it's not her kind of pushing out. That's not the way that, that Kara works. You know, if, if I need to defeat this villain or defeat this criminal or, or whatever, I've got to reach inside myself and, um, and exert myself to, to use my powers to defeat them. Rather, it's the other way. Kara spends her entire life pulling back to be sure that when she's talking to somebody, she doesn't accidentally freeze them with uh, her breath. Or when she shakes someone's hand, she doesn't actually crush every bone in their body. It's a great reminder of just how powerful Kara and, and Clark, Kal-El, are in, in terms of you know Kryptonians under a yellow sun where their entire body is a, a solar battery. 
And in that way, think about how you have to live your life, how you constantly have to be on alert and kind of the pressure and the, um, the danger that you're always aware of that you pose to everybody around you. That's trauma in, in sort of a different way, knowing that if you let, let your guard down, even for a second, horrible things could, could happen. Um, so, you know, leave, leave it to Tom King to take what used to be one of the more sort of um, lighthearted or hopeful characters in the DCU and remind us how much trauma is, is really at the core of her. And it's done expertly. There's nobody better to tell this type of story than Tom King in my mind. And when you pair it up with the beautiful line work of Bilquis Evely, and again, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the, the vocabulary, the, the syntax that Tom is using here, especially uh, as it pertains to Ruthie with the way she speaks, that juxtaposition of her literally being a dirt farmer, farming dirt coming from a, a family of, of rock farmers or whatever it is on her planet, but yet having this flowery, almost aris, uh, aristocratic way of speaking or, or royal way of speaking, uh, it, it, it's just fantastic, especially here in this issue where uh, Ruthie herself in, in her own way with that flowery language talking about not having much use for royalty yet she speaks so properly uh i love that it's fantastic so again not my favorite issue because it felt a little bit like a setup issue for what comes later um but again when it comes to tom king's work so much of it and we talked about this with uh rorschach as well it he really like i I get it like dc wants two bites of the apple right sell it as a uh, a floppy, you know, or a monthly issue or what have you, and then sell it in trade. And some people are going to double dip and buy both. Some people will buy one or the other. Um, but I really do feel like his work is best read, you know, as one complete story, whether it's, you know, a 12 issue Mr. Miracle series that's all collected in one hardcover or, or collected edition or Rorschach. Again, that's going to be better together. Heroes in uh, Crisis. It's going to be the same thing with the Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow. It's going to read so much better um, as a whole rather than individual parts. So, uh, all right. So last book we're going to talk about in detail today, Catwoman number 35 written by Ram V another fill-in artist, Nina Vakuva does the art in this particular issue. Jordi Belair on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, You know, this issue was okay, but I feel like it suffers from a lot of the same problems we, talked about with Nightwing. Again, Catwoman has had such an interesting tone and feel over and over. I've compared it to a Michael Mann film just in terms of the cinematic feel uh, from Fernando Blanco's art to the crime noir feel that uh, Ram V is putting in the narrative. And the fact that this is tying into fear state. So we're losing a little bit of that narrative push it doesn't have the same cinematic feel and the art is just not as clean or as dynamic um, or as enjoyable in my mind as the art from Fernando Blanco. And yeah, I end up feeling much like I felt with, with Nightwing, you know, and I oftentimes am singing the praises of Catwoman and talking about how it's one of the best books that DC puts out, but I wouldn't say that and then hand somebody this issue. Um, because I wouldn't really expect anybody to want to read another issue of Ram V's Catwoman after reading this issue because it's just not that good. Um, yeah, and I don't really have much more to, to, to say than that. Uh, there are hopefully better days to come with this, even though 
obviously we're going to get a few more issues that tie into to fear state because I, I do like the last page and the little blurb that says next a gardener a clown a, a witch walk into alley town so <laughs> yeah. you know I, we know it's eventually the, what catwoman is going to deal with is the poison ivy aspect catwoman and, and harley quinn are going to deal with the poison ivy aspect and hopefully we're going to get there's two different poison ivies right now and they need to be brought back together two different aspects of her herself uh you know kind of her who she is her self-identity whatever you want to not not it's not really personality um but she's not whole right now she's fractured she's fragmented and she needs to be brought back on you know all her her sense of self and her identity and and all that needs to be um reconciled basically so i am looking forward to that looking forward to because i think you know despite the fact that originally when dc started taking Ivy that way, turning her more of an anti-hero and less of a villain. I wasn't the biggest fan of that, but her relationship with Poison Ivy, uh, or rather her uh, relationship with Harley Quinn works so well that I think she needs, she has much more value as a character in that relationship. And so I, I do think that she needs to head back that way. Um, and so I'll be glad when, uh, especially people who are huge fans of Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy in terms of their relationship, which you know, again, I think it that relationship makes for richer characters. I'm not the biggest Harley fan, but I, I recognize that they both those characters have more value and they work better in that when they're together, when they're in a relationship. So even though I won't be reading the comics and the stories about that relationship, I'm going to be happy for the people that are fans of that and happy that that's where those two characters uh, end up. So for that reason, I am still interested in this story. Um, and the fact that Obviously, Ram V has been uh, given a, a fantastic narrative. Uh, I did see where he announced on social media a, a day or two ago that he's actually leaving Catwoman. I was pretty pretty disappointed to hear that he, he's leaving Catwoman. He just has too much going on and something had to give. And, and That's a bummer. When's his last yeah. issue? Uh, he didn't state when his last issue was. It was interesting. The The statement basically said talking to his editors at DC and with other things in his personal life, um, ramping up. So I don't know, maybe he's getting married. I, I have no idea what he's referring to. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he said he, he just was going to have left less time and something had to give. And what he had to give up was, was Catwoman. And then somebody responded like, Oh, first James Tynan's leaving DC and now you. And he's like, read what I said. I was talking to my editor editors at DC about upcoming things. He didn't say upcoming things at DC, but if you're talking to your DC editor about upcoming things, DC <laughs> editors are only going to be talking to you about DC things. So he's like, what do you, you know, he put the, the Barack it. Obama meme on there where Obama's <laughs> looking around like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, he's specifically saying he needs more time for these, uh, to work on these other DC things that he has coming up. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I'm just glad that we got, the run on Catwoman that we did. I do hope we get a little bit more of his Catwoman where it's not, for lack of a better term, interrupted or co-opted by this fear state. Like I, I want it. And, and it does sound like we're going to get the end of his story, you know, the end of the Fowler Valley thing and, and whatever. Um, but I, I've never, I've never read this many consecutive issues of the, of a Batwoman comic. I've read an issue here or there, oftentimes when it's a crossover or, I picked it up because I like the cover or, or whatever, but I've never been invested in a Catwoman title ever um, for this long. I mean, I think I read like the first eight or nine issues of yeah. the Joel Jones run 
on uh, before I just kind of I fell off. Yeah. It, it sort of lost its momentum. It did. But I've yeah. loved every every issue of of Ram V's Catwoman up until this one, and, and you know, for obvious reasons, it's not really his story. Um, so I say all that to say whoever they have that's going to follow Ram V's got big shoes to fill. And I, I want to keep buying it. Like DC, do please do a good job of putting somebody on Batwoman who's going to, you know, continue. And, and I, I would I would hope that, you know, Ram V might even share, hey, if I kept going, here's what I might have done, you know, and, and maybe they can incorporate some of those uh, so the, those elements. And, and it would be great if Fernando Blanco stays on the title as well. Uh, even if Ram V's leaving as as the writer, so, uh, but yeah, it's a lot of the same problems with uh, with the Nightwing comic as as the Catwoman. I feel like um, just feels like it's interrupting what Ram V was trying to do, and having a fill in artist didn't do it any favors. So, what were your thoughts, Rocky? Oh, well, I'm, I'm actually much more forgiving of this issue. I, I think there was a lot that we needed to tone down from. We needed, we had some things we needed to wrap up. I mean, uh, Detective Hadley did sacrifice his life. He was killed last issue protecting Maggie, uh, Maggie Kyle, uh, Selena's, uh, sister. Maggie leaves this issue and she leaves, uh, she leaves, she actually leaves Alleytown and basically tells Selena that loving you, Selena, is like loving the sun. You can't get close without burning up. So yeah, it's, she, uh, she leaves Gotham City altogether, not just Alley Town. That's exactly right, and and so I mean, there's there's a lot of changes that happen in Selena's life here, and I mean, and she's dealing with the loss of Detective Hadley. Detective Hadley cared for her. He wasn't a love interest, but he did care for her, and he did give his life. Uh, I also well, he would have been a love interest if it had been up to him. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah, but Batman had something to to say about it as well. Yeah, yeah uh, for sure. But uh, and Carl Valley, it was revealed he escaped dressed up like a fireman. So Carl Val Carl Valley, Father Valley, is still in play. I found it very interesting where Clayface gave a talk, and I thought it was very interesting. Clayface talks to the other sort of outsiders. Uh, uh, he talks to Knockout, uh, Cheshire, Croc, Firefly, and it's very interesting that the speech he gives them. He talks about. Uh, you know, the will to take power that is not yours. We know this well. We've all been here. We've lived outside the system and yet taken power from it. And there too, people look down upon us with fear. We were the villains of their story. We're the villains of other people's story. Well, now is our time. And I couldn't help but think when I'm listening to Clayface give this speech, I'm thinking like, if I didn't know better, I think he was, uh, you know, giving a speech to the Insanity Collective. It was like, yep. why, don't, why don't they all just join the Insanity Collective here? Uh, I thought the same thing when I read that. Yeah. yeah, it was just crazy. But it's like, really? Why don't you just call Master Wise and call it a day? And that, but be mindful because he's got this little mind machine you might want to avoid. But in in any event, one question, an open question that still exists. I don't know what the hell's going on here, but we got Cheshire, and and then in the in the panel above we got Cheshire Cat. I mean, does does Cheshire even know that her daughter? is actually Cheshire Cat. I mean, this it, it just seems incredible that no one's bothered to tell Cheshire that her daughter, Cheshire Cat, is basically Catwoman's sidekick. And and it, I can't believe it hasn't really been acknowledged. Is, is Cheshire aware of this? I'm assuming, is that why Cheshire is even in Gotham? For those people who don't know much about Cheshire, Cheshire was, she made her debut in, in pages of Teen, the new Teen Titans, Back in the Marv Wolfman days, I believe, and 
Perez Wolfman, and she was an assassin. And so for her to suddenly decide to be an alley town working, you know, working alongside Croc and Clayface and Knockout and Firefight, that's not Cheshire's style. Clearly, the only reason she's there is because her do- she must know, I'm assuming she must know her daughter is in Gotham City or in Alleytown, but maybe not. But it, I find it really odd that Ram V is, you mean, they're, they're literally separated by it panels. Feels, yeah, yeah, that really felt like an editorial thing because you remember we did get that Chesh- Cheshire story in Batman Urban Legends. That's right. That was kind of establishing Cheshire being in Gotham. And our big critique on that story was the same thing. The characterization of Cheshire in that story didn't feel like anything previous <laughs> characterization of Cheshire. So what the hell? Are they trying to give us a kinder, gentler version of this assassin? Well, not only that, remember that now at the at the end of Infinite Frontier, uh, uh, Roy Harper is now going to be look. His number one priority is look is is to look for his daughter Leon, and of course, Leon is the Cheshire Cat. So at some point, I'm wondering, are we? I mean, I would, I personally would love to see a miniseries. I'd like to see a four or five issue series with Roy Harper, and you know, eventually running into Cheshire Cat, finding his daughter, running into Cheshire. I mean, to me, that would be a very interesting story. I mean, by all accounts, Roy Harper should be prop- popping like up here a, in Alleytown. That sounds like a bad reality show. Roy oh. Harper, Cheshire, and <laughs> and Cheshire Cat all in a miniseries, and we follow along with their daily lives. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, fortunately, they fortunately, I'm not, I'm not, I won't be the one writing it. So we got, you know, hope, hopefully they'll have a good writer doing it. But it just seems to me that there's such an obvious story here that ought to be told, and the characters are right in front of us, and they're not talking to each other, and no one's saying anything. It's like it's driving me crazy. And I mean, for those of us who who love Roy Harper, we love he lost Lee, and she's right there. Cheshire's right there. We got mom, daughter, and dad in different books, and no one's talking to each other. It's like, this is insane. But in any event, um, you know what, if, if you know who I would, if we're really going to write that the person, I think that would be the perfect person to give us a good mix of humor and action and make it work. Matthew Rosenberg. <laughs> yeah. That's a, I agree with that. That would be an excellent choice. I wouldn't mind that at all. Yeah, no, that, that's for sure. I, I'd like to see that. But um, in any event, um, yeah, well, uh, Clayface describes his little group there of Croc, Knockout, Clayface, Firefly, and Cheshire's. They're the last bastion of freedom in the fear state, and they want to help Catwoman protect Alleytown because that's their home. And meanwhile, Selina wants to go and, and uh, she's going to help, uh, I think, help. Uh, she's going to help the Batman family, and, and uh, uh, she's sort of distracted and she leaves Alleytown just when the anti oracle is sending out that, that messaging uh, that we see playing out in the pages of Batman. Meanwhile, Riddler and Penguin are talking about kidnapping Poison Ivy because they want to. They want to get control of that fear toxin that is in it heightened through the chemistry in Poison Ivy's body, and in any event, um, that's kind of where we we end up. And again, like you said, next issue it's going to be interesting. Gardner, the Gardner and Harley are going to be coming into Alley Town, and we're finally going to be getting some interaction with poison ivy and remember there's two different versions of ivy there's the poison and then there's the ivy <laughs> so there's there's two actual uh 
two sides to Harvey that are in different parts of Gotham. It looks like so. It's 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 going to be interesting, and I'm I'm glad Ram V is uh, staying on long enough to to finish the arc. Anyway. Yeah, and again, uh, really hope whoever comes on next kind of continues with the same tone because this has been a fantastic run of uh, of Catwoman. So. Uh, all right. Well, that does it for uh, the books that we've read. Uh, there are a few other titles coming out today that I'll mention. Uh, Batman the Animated Adventures Continue, Season 2, Number 4, is out today. And then there are a few collection, Birds of Prey Fighters, uh, which is Gail Simone's uh, part of her run on Birds of Prey. That's collected. There's a collection for the Low Low Woods. Uh, there's also a Batman Little Gotham collection, uh, Batman Little Gotham calendar days so if you're looking to uh, pick up some trades of uh, of any of those they're out this week uh, as well so all in all sort of an average week uh, so what was your what was your pick of the week uh, I gotta go with the, the Aquaman uh, the becoming um, with with sort of an honorable mention to Miracle Molly but it ended up yeah. being my, my least favorite. again just from the squandered potential I think so many fascinating aspects to that story we talked about a lot of them um, it, it's just a, a story I think that engenders, uh, or can start a lot of conversation, but I, unfortunately I think that artwork's going to turn a lot of people off. So, but yeah, Aquaman, the becoming fantastic start. Can't wait to read more of that. Yeah. And, uh, well, my, my favorite is super, Supergirl, woman of tomorrow. And my, the one that disappointed me the most was Nightwing 84. And, uh, which one disappointed you the most? Yeah, it's that Miracle Molly. Miracle um, Molly? Yeah. yeah, it just that that artwork just did not speak to me. So, um, yeah, it was it was tough. It, it's going to be one of those books where, kind of like when people ask the question, "What movie did you absolutely love that you'll never watch again?" You know, because it was just so uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> and that that's kind of how that artwork was uh, was for me. So, okay. uh, got anything coming up that you want to tease for uh, the listeners? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to have a pretty busy week at work here. So I, I, I am finally done my thumbnails for my Infinite Frontier overview, but I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to it this weekend, but I'm going to try. But what about yeah, yourself? I'm gonna be, yeah, I'm going to be traveling to uh, California to attend a funeral for a, a death in the family, unfortunately. So I'm not going to have too that. much coming out this week, but I am hoping to get a creator-owned spotlight up for uh, a campaign that's running on Zoop right now for a book called Trickster. So Maybe that might hit on Thursday or Friday. It just depends on if I if I get the time to do that amongst traveling and everything else. Uh, I will remind everybody, don't forget about our spoiler-free new comic book day episode that comes out every Wednesday. And also don't forget if you want to contribute to the drive to, uh, to buy some books that are inexplicably banned in this uh, school district in uh, York, Pennsylvania, go check out the, the website. The comic source to show notes you, the link will be there you can go to amazon and uh, and purchase so uh and also a reminder if you're listening to us on the podcast head over to youtube be sure you head over to uh the comic boom uh channel subscribe to rocky's channel so you know when he has new content coming out ring that notification bell give this video a like all that stuff helps us uh, grow our numbers which in turn gives us more access so we can talk about more comics for everybody so uh, really appreciate everybody hanging out, and uh, I guess that's it. Any last thoughts, Rocky? No, just everybody have a good week. Yep, have a good week, everybody. Uh, appreciate you listening as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. 
please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.